welcome to episode 36 of Girl on Pop, and welcome to 2023. I am your co-host, Brain Antunes, joined as always by fellow co-host. I am Ashley Lynch. It's nice to be back talking movies. We are not dead, apparently. Of course not. Well, I'm contrary to contrary to the rumors, we are still alive. Wait, there were no rumors of us dying, are there? I started one just now. What? What? <laughs> well, I have received numerous uh, texts from various people going, "Are you guys going to record again soon?" I'm like, "Yes, we are working on it. It's coming. You know, shit happened. It's called." We're life. both busy people. Sometimes, you know, it's like. You, you get the podcast when you can, you know, it'd be, uh, maybe in the future we'll be on like an actual schedule, but yeah, exactly. Well, we are sort of on like, a, in my mind, we're kind of like on a two week schedule, but it doesn't always work out that way. No, especially when things get busy. The end of the year is always super busy for me with spark and festivals and then trying to catch up friend of the year stuff. It always feels like I'm running around after like the middle of September, which explains why, the extended hiatus. I think the last time we, I think when the, the first year we did the show, we managed to get through most of the holidays. And then we did do like a sort of end of year, beginning of year show. But last year was kind of like this big gaping gap, October, November, December. So, Yeah, I think we ended up banking some stuff. But unfortunately, yeah. this year we were not so on the ball that uh, no, we did I, not have material saved up for people. No, I apologize. That's totally my bad because we did talk about recording stuff and then I never materialized. Bad me. But, okay, we're Such back. Life. Yeah, it, we're back. Enough of that. We do have stuff to talk about. We thought we would kind of talk about our favorite movies of the last year. But before we get into it, I thought I would check in with you and see if you have any general thoughts. Maybe we leave this till the end. General thoughts about 2022 as a year in movies anyways. Like, do you want to leave that for the end? Um, no, I think we can talk about this at the beginning, just as long as yeah. we're not, like, spoiling our list or anything. Yeah, exactly. For so what's I mean, upcoming. Yeah, like, what what did you think about, like, 2022 is, like, it was sort of marked as the year that it was going to bring the movies back from COVID. Do you think it kind of, that was the year of it, or? I think it definitely did on a selected basis. Um, if you were Tom Cruise, then movies are back. Uh, because, uh, like, let's let's be real. Maverick like overperformed everyone's expectations, and I know that um, I I'm pretty sure they had uh, pressure to put out the movie because it was it had been sitting for a little bit before it got released, and I I'm sure they were pressured to put it out on Paramount Plus, and Tom Cruise held to its guts because he is a very big um, advocate for the theatrical experience. It's that's something he believes in very deeply, um, regardless of what you may think about Tom Cruise as a person. He cares deeply about the theatrical experience and the movie-going experience. And so to him, Top Gun Maverick was always going to be a theatrical experience. They held back for that while everyone else, like especially Warner Brothers, was like, day and date, everything's going streaming in theaters, and, you know, we, we just got to roll with this. And they held tight with Top Gun Maverick and kept in theaters for as long as possible. And it paid off because that movie made so much money, way more money than anyone else. And it kind of signaled, I think uh, a lot to the other studios with like your big tentpole films. If you're going to stick it out in streaming, then you're cutting your legs out from under you. 
Uh, sure, it's great. People get to see it right away in the comfort of their home. You know, the accessibility is, is really nice, especially for people who may not be comfortable going back to the theater yet because there are still people who are in that camp or people who are just so busy that they can't get out to the theater that often enough. Um, it's very nice. But it definitely paid off financially, and I think that's the, the paradigm we're going to start to see over the next few years, especially with the larger movies, I think the studios are going to be favoring the theatrical release schedule more and maybe even like lengthening those windows a bit. I could see that happening. I mean, I know from my own experience of movie going uh, over the last year, because I mean, it really is the first year that I've gone back to the theatrical experience. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of on the outskirts because I've, I was already unhappy with going to the movies. Like I love seeing movies i hate audiences i find them annoying i i just think there's the respect that i have for the film going experience isn't shared by the general a general audience and festivals have their own hurdles they have to jump so i always feel like like i was always on the verge of being that person that just doesn't go to the movies and 2022 really proved to me that i am that person like i will go to the movies for a select number of films and basically it's kind of like the air quotes event movies and everything else I'm perfectly happy to watch at home even if I have to wait for it I just can't be bothered I mean the few times that I went to the movies this year was basically to share the experience with a friend like when I went to the movies a couple of times this year and re- literally I went to the movies like six times twice with you like and and with friends like Dan and I went to like we selected three movies to see theatrically this year we went to see The Batman we went to see Top Gun Maverick and we went to see Avatar and that was it and honestly if I had only seen those three movies in theaters I would have been perfectly happy with my movie going experience this year you know it was great to see a movie with you it was great to see a movie with Melissa Um, I didn't get out to the festival this year though I hope to next year but Honestly, I don't miss the people. Like, I miss the experience because there is, like, when I went to see, I think it was The Batman because that was the first movie we saw theatrically. When the trailers rolled, I got, like, legitimately emotional. Like, I think I may have cried because it is an experience that you can't replicate at home. I don't care how big my TV is, how great my sound system is. Watching a movie with a group of people and sharing that experience, there's something kind of magical about it. But I just can't deal with the people. Like, I just can't. I can't deal with them talking, with their phones, the noise. And I'm to the point now where, you know, unless it's something really special, I just can't be bothered. I just can't be bothered. (laughs) You know, I hear what you're saying, and I totally get and empathize all of the issues with going to the theater. Yes, it's overpriced. Yes, some of the people are insufferable. Um... Yes, I have a same kind of general disdain for people as a whole. However, I still love the theatrical experience. It's like, even after all these years, it is still a magical experience to me to go to the theater. And I I never want to give that up. I see minimum of one month, movie a month in theaters, sometimes more, depending on what's what's coming out. Uh, I will say I had the exact same response as you the first time I went back to the theater. I think it was for uh, for Fast and Furious 8, or I guess 9, Fast 9, um, that I went back to the theater for. 
and I go up to the concession and I order popcorn and the person behind the counter is like, do you have a scene card? And it's like the fact that no one had asked me for my scene card in like two plus years, something that's just like a regular occurrence. I was just like, Oh my God, I'm in a movie theater. I'm going to cry. You know, it was, it was an emotional experience. It's like, so I totally get that, especially for people who like movies are, an important part of their life. So, you know, which is very much me. So I totally get that. But like, even for all of the problems that going to the movie has, like when I, when I went to go see Wakanda forever, it was supposed to be in 3d. Cause that was the only showing they had at the theater. Um, I would have happily gone with just a 2d screening of it, but whatever. And they had to restart the movie no fewer than four times because they couldn't get the 3D calibrated right, and it was completely off. So already, like, 40 minutes into our screening, we haven't really started the movie, but we watched the opening scene, like, four times, and they finally gave up and projected in 2D. And it's like, okay, well, the impact of T'Challa's funeral at the front has kind of lost its, like, luster from the impact it would have had by this point but still okay we're here even with problems like that even with like just trying to find that theater where people are respectful and not on their phones it's like i i share those same frustrations with the theater but the get is still good enough for me that i love going to the theater i am tom cruise yeah and i mean I, I will also say this. So the 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 way that it affects the pocketbook, and it's weird how your mind works, right? Because I pay for like I'm I, I, I like I know you pay for the Cineplex monthly movie fan thing. Yeah. I buy the landmark one because I am a land man, landmark girl at heart. Um every month. Ten dollars comes out. I literally saw one movie at Landmark last oh, year. Oh, you're not getting your value for I'm it. I'm so not. Yet I bitch that a ticket costs $22. (laughs) I legitimately am the person that complained that I bought two tickets to a movie. I used my two free passes and I still have to pay another $10 because the tickets cost more than what my voucher covers. Mm -hmm. So I'm still not getting my money and I'm still paying into it. I will like the mentality is so crazy to me. I think I probably will cancel this. I mean, the other upside for me is like this is very like Canadian specific. So, uh, for to like Cineplex theaters, but they started doing, um, you can now collect the scene points. Um, For people who don't know, it's like a thousand scene points gets you a free movie ticket. And you now get scene points when you shop at Safeway. So, for just doing my regular grocery shop now, I'm getting additional free movies for that. So I, a friend and I, we recently went to go see uh, Megan and we went and saw it in the VIP theater and I grabbed the tickets and between my points and my free pass for us to go to the, the premium seating, cushy armchair food and drink service at, at your chair theater. I only ended up paying like about $8. Yeah. And it's like, this is gold. I never give this up. Now, I would say if I live close to a landmark theater, I would probably go for that because I like those theaters better. Yeah, it's more convenient for me to get to because I'm mostly yeah. like commuting on transit, and there's a landmark right at New West, so it's much much easier for me to hop on a Sky Train, and I'm there in 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, unfortunately, closest I- one for me is a 
good distance away. Yeah, so which is why I subscribed to it. So I'm hoping that this year I'll watch more stuff. But what I also found was that there just wasn't a lot of stuff that I wanted to see. Like, you know, by the time that I was kind of like in the mindset that, okay, I'm ready to go back to the movies, what's there to watch? The mm. answer was, well, nothing that I want to make the effort to go to the movies for. Like, it's not stuff that I would generally watch anyways. So that was my other kind of quirk with the year. It's like a lot of the stuff I'd either already seen it or I just didn't, I didn't think it was worth my time and money to make the commute to watch it. See, now I thought 2022 as a whole, like the, all the movies that came out in 2022, I think was an absolutely spectacular year that we got not only some incredible films this year, but we got more incredible films than we usually get in one single year. And I think this is one of those years that's, you know, kind of like, uh, like 1995 or whatnot, where we're going to look back on this in a decade and go 2022. That was a hell of a good year for movies. We got this, we got this, we got this, we got this, we got this. That was a great year. And like when I, you know, it's like, I, trying to make up a top 10 list for 2021 it was like once you get down to the bottom of the list you're just like ah i guess this you know it's like the bottom of the list starts to really feel like the bottom and then my list this year was just like god i can't stop on 10 i made a top 20 list because there were too many movies i wanted to include and even then it felt i was listing stuff off and i went back and i looked at my top 10 for 2021 and with the exception of one or two movies that are on that list at like the very top of that list. If those movies came out this year, the, like the top two movies from last year would might've made my top 20. Everything else wouldn't have been on my list for this year because there were so many other great movies that came out this year. Yeah. My, well, my, you know, and I, I had this conversation actually with the, the row three guys, we recorded a, um, 2022 year in review uh, earlier in the week, which will go out later this week. I'll link to it in the show notes. And one of the things we talked about, because it was a conversation that we had at World 3 all the time, was, was it a good year in movies? And my answer was always, if you didn't watch movies that you liked, it's because you didn't look hard enough. Because every uh-huh. year can really be a year of really great movies. I think that you're right. There are some years that are, definitely better than others and i agree with you i think 2022 was an exceptionally good year um i found a lot of the stuff was either front-loaded or back-loaded which was very very strange um there wasn't a lot of stuff from sort of mid-year that sticks with me but then i also was the person that watched pretty much like 30 percent of her movie watching from last year was in the last like two months of the year so i don't know if i'm the good judge of that but it f- certainly felt like there was this kind of like theatrical drought in what was originally like the summer movie blockbuster season. I think that also speaks to the fact that I'm getting to a point in my movie watching life where a lot of the stuff that's considered the tentpole summer releases just holds zero interest for me. Like I just don't really care about those movies. So And yet, who was it that dragged me out to Top Gun Maverick? Well, and so this is the thing, like, there are specifics. And then, I mean, I was really excited to see Avatar, and I really wanted to see the Batman. And, I mean, there are still those 
blockbuster mm-hmm. things that appeal to me. But like Wakanda Forever, I went to see that because I kind of felt like I needed to see it. But I really had zero interest in seeing it. Like I could have gone without seeing it and I would have been fine. Right? I wouldn't have felt like, oh my God, my, my movie watching year is incomplete if I hadn't seen this. You know, I'm I'm still on board the Marvel train. I go and I see all these movies opening weekend. I don't think there's there hasn't been a movie since like Thor: The Dark World that I haven't enjoyed. I have a dedicated shelf in my Blu-ray uh, collection for just keeping all of the Marvel movies in order because there's like a can there's a timeline to these things. They yeah. follow a very specific timeline. You know, even to the so, point so where wait, wait, because, are you are you organizing your Marvel Universe movies according to canon? Oh absolutely. It That's starts amazing. with it starts with Iron Man and it ends with I think it's Thor Love and Thunder at this point. But not only that, this is how far I have gone. Um, is because there's the Disney Plus T V shows and Disney has said they have absolutely no intention of ever releasing physical media of these shows. And these are in the timeline. It, you know, it's like the what happens in Loki is going to affect what happens in Ant-Man Quantumania. You know, it's like, so it's like important to have this thing in the timeline. So for my own peace of mind, and because I have obsessive compulsive disorder, at least I imagine I do, uh, I decided to go to the effort of creating physical Blu-ray editions of all the TV shows. So not only have I created Blu-rays of these shows, but they have animated menus and special features on them, and I printed off cover art for them. So there are these legit-looking Blu-rays of the TV shows that are complete one-offs that sit in my Blu-ray collection on my Marvel shelf. So that's how far I go. So I am still very much on that train. Maybe at some point I won't be on that train anymore, but I'm still enjoying it. Okay, well, I think it's at this point. Well, well, we talked about TV. I know we didn't like plan on it, but was there any television that you really, really thought stood out above the rest that you watched last year? You know, I was just talking about this with uh, with someone yesterday, and it's like the one show that I think blew me away the most last year. Just like I wouldn't have expected to, to like this show, and I was just like, holy shit, this is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Is the uh, the series The Bear mm-hmm. um, about the 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 you know high 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 end chef that takes over his like low rent family Chicago restaurant and decides yeah. to like run it like it's you know like it's a, a high end kitchen and it's that show just like freaking amazed me I was I was obsessed with that show for like very brief period but like that whole thing was just like so solid it came out of nowhere yeah I think that I and I think I watched that one on your recommendation I, I remember that I didn't know anything about it and somebody mentioned it in passing that it was really good and I'm pretty sure it was on the show that you brought it up and then we watched it because it was streaming on Disney Plus and we both Dan and I really really enjoyed it but then like our, the only reality television we watch, I shouldn't say the only, the only reality television I watch is Hell's Kitchen. So mm-hmm. it's already a food show. So I was already like predestined to love it. Um, but yeah, we really both really enjoy that show way more than we probably should have. And it, it feels like we had a, had like, 
kitchen stories kind of had like a, a re- restauranturing had a moment in 2022. Actually, we had the bear and then we had the menu. Yeah, it wasn't, it's not just restauranturing though. It's this whole like um, one percenters movies. Like yeah. onions also falls into that category. Yeah, There's a couple of others. Uh, and like, if you want to like sort of like extend the timeline a little bit towards the end of last year, we had pig with Nicholas Cage, Yeah, which yeah, sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah, which yeah, yeah, delves yeah. in that too. It's like, it's having a moment. Totally having a moment. The the one that I wanted to mention, it's not even like a 2022 show. It's actually a 2021 show. But we had started, actually Willow, I thought was really great. It just wrapped. So technically, I'm still counting it as a 2022. I'm a couple episodes into that show. And honestly, it's like, uh, I, I felt kind of relieved watching it. I was like, oh my God, I'm enjoying this so much. This is the feeling I wanted from Game of Thrones. Instead of Game of instead Game of Thrones just makes me feel dirty and awful at the end of it. And I want to I want fun fantasy again. Yeah, you know. The, yeah, the thing that struck me about Willow it's I mean clearly everybody gives a fuck because it's an expensive show that looks really great. Oh but yeah. It almost feels like nobody gives a flying fuck if it lands or not. And I love that sort of like energy of it. I don't know. I think it plays really well. But the one that I wanted to mention because I think people are sleeping on it um, and it is from two years ago and I know season two is coming in the middle of the summer but Foundation on Apple TV Plus. And I think this is a Mm -hmm. problem with Apple TV Plus in general because they just dump shit onto their platform without like proper advertising. They're getting better at it but not good enough I don't think. They seem to have been more concerned with creating like television shows that um, through word of mouth yes, if you learn like about and because the shows are that good. Like that would be the other big surprise show of 2022. I don't want to hijack foundation, but I'll yeah, no, no, mention no, no, this real it. quick is, um, Oh crap. What's the name of it? I can't remember now. Uh, the one with, um, the what? The, the severance, the office underground yeah. show. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that show, also completely like surprise came out of nowhere and just like blew me away and yeah. everyone was talking about that show for a good long while yeah and actually that's an interesting theme of the apple shows because they tend to have television like if you look at their lineup of television shows maybe not so much movies but their shows for sure they are certainly not interested in uh, peddling to sort of middle of the road. They are very much high concept. You need to pay attention when you're watching this. You can't really be doing anything else. Like we want you to be watching this actively. Uh You need to be engaged, which I think is what I appreciate about their television. But they're creating uh, stuff that has like real kind of cultural impact. Ted Lasso, huge cultural impact. Severance has had a pretty good cultural impact. And then they also produce stuff like, you know, C and mm-hmm. The Morning Show, and which has a little less cultural impact. I don't know. I really like C. I think it has, it's a really interesting, there's some very interesting world building in that show. And I mean, The Morning Show is, it is what it is. I mean, yeah. I think it's trying to be, um, it thinks it's more important than it actually is. The show that no one ever brings up, that I absolutely love on Apple is uh, Mythic Quest. 
Oh, which is fantastic. Yeah. Dan and I love that show. We think it's genius. This season was so good. Yeah, they just wrapped up season three, and it's yeah. so good. I it's loved so it. Great. It was so much fun. Oh, uh, yeah. I love that show a lot. Like, a lot. Um, but, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about some movies. Yes. Why don't we? Like, we, we, we did put together a top ten list. Like you said, it was really easy to put it together a top 20. And originally, when I put my list together... I did have approximately 20 titles. I don't think it was exactly 20, but literally they just like rolled off. I started putting a list together and I was like, okay, so what is my favorite stuff that I watched last year? And there was so much that I, I really did have to sort of step back and calibrate and go, okay, but what did I like more to try to limit it down to, you know, an adequate number? And I think yeah, same. Yeah. I, I made a top 10 list and I just immediately did not stop at 10 and just started rattling off yeah, more movies. Yeah, so. exactly. But I think we'll we'll start with our top 10 and we'll work our way back from 10 to 1. And then, you know, at the end of the show, we'll... Yeah, we can do some... Uh, yeah, some honorable mentions. Yeah. Because I think that that's only fair. Now, before we get into this, one thing I just wanted to say is like, because we've seen each other's lists at this point. Yes. Um, and the thing that I think is so interesting is that our lists are radically different. Pretty and much. not just radically different order, but there are very few movies that are on both our lists. And I, I go so far as to say, I think your list is, like, you, you hear enough, like, you know, podcasts that do, like, top ten lists at the end of the year sort of thing. Or you see other critics' lists, here's our top ten. And it's usually a lot of the same movies, and it's just, like, the order shifts around a little bit. Whereas your list is not representative of anyone else's list that I've seen. And honestly, I find that exciting. Yeah, no, well, and neither is yours. And I, honestly, I could have done, like, I thought about this later. Because originally when I was going to record with the row three guys, we had talked about doing a top ten list. And then we shifted our focus to, like, more general discussion of 2022 in, in movies because we hadn't talked in, like, three and a half years. Um, and I was really glad of it. But for, like, you know, two days, I was like, okay, I could do a top ten list of ten favorite horror movies. Ten movies mm-hmm. directed by women. 10 documentaries that I really liked. I easily could have put any of this together, but this for me, and I always preamble this, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, for a lot of critics, when they're talking about, you know, best movies of the year, and that's why I don't never call it a best list. I always say a top 10 list. Because the best, I, I find that, like, objectively, it's unfair to call it a best list because I know I watched better made movies last year yeah technically like i can appreciate that there's like the fablemans is a perfect example i can appreciate it's a beautifully made film you know spielberg is doing some great stuff it's really well written i didn't love it like i thought it was good i enjoyed it but i i never i don't have the need to ever watch it ever again no no whereas if i hadn't put the batman on my list i would have been doing myself a service because it's the movie i watched the most last year well, and the other thing is, like, there's a there's another podcast I listen to, which is a game podcast. And whenever they do, like, their year-end wrap-up sort of thing, they have a little jingle that they play uh, to talk about, like, you know, their favorites of the year. And they, they go with favorites instead of best of. But on top of that, they also, like, add as, like, a little asterisk to the end of it based on an incomplete sampling. Yeah. And it's like, absolutely. And I think your list demonstrates this better than anything else because, like, 
a lot of the movies on your list are movies that I just haven't had time to get to yet. And there's also a lot of movies, there's some movies on your list that I haven't even heard of. And I, I think that's freaking amazing. It kind of shows you what just kind of like a, a plethora it has of, of, of great stuff we had this year is that you have stuff on your list that I didn't even know existed. Okay, which just means now it's I'm now, really excited. Which just means it's now going on my list and I need to watch it. And I will preface my list further by saying I still have not seen EO. EO. I, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I call it the donkey movie. But made like all the critics top 10 lists and I have tried so I'm like okay I'm going to put this on my watch list I'm going to try to get to this before the end of the year I read what it was about and I was like fuck this it's not happening (laughs) everybody's listening I'm like fuck I'm going to have to watch the donkey movie I still haven't watched the donkey movie I will get to it at some point (laughs) I've heard about this movie but I haven't seen it either it just every time I I go like I'm like I'm gonna need to mentally work up to this because I just yeah I I feel like I need to have like a a a, a big sharp coffee before I sit down <laughs> yeah. to watch this thing. For sure. I, I need to I need I need to make sure I'm not gonna fall asleep. I'm gonna be like fully alert when I watch it. Right. Who knows? Maybe it's absolutely captivating. It'd be like one of those things you sit down, put on before bed, and you're like, "I was gonna fall asleep, but I just got sucked in so hard." Maybe the donkey movie's that good. I have one of these on my list that you'll be surprised by which one. I love those movies. Those are my favorite movies. Okay, well, let's jump in, and I'll start with mine just to get the climax out of the way. (laughs) Okay. My number ten is Avatar: The Way of the Water, and honestly. Um, I'm, I'm not, I have mixed feelings with the Avatar universe because I remember, I clearly remember when we went to see Avatar, the first Avatar film, I walked out of that movie thinking that was like beautiful. I fucking hated that movie. I watched it one time. I refused to buy it on Blu-ray. Like Dan's like, we need to buy that movie. I'm like, you're buying it because I'm spending no money on it. And for years, this was me, Marina anti-Avatar. And then... You know, they started talking they were going to do a second and a third and they were like upping the technology. And of course, now I'm kind of in an adjacent industry where I'm, you know, I need to kind of know what's happening. I'm like, okay, I can kind of give this a little bit more credit. Like I understood when I watched the first one that it was doing something innovative, but I went into, so in preparation for Way of Water, we actually did rewatch Avatar and I hate to admit it, but I did cry. Like, it felt like I was watching it for the first time. Like, I remembered general swaths of it. This is for the first movie? For the first movie. Okay. So we rewatched it, like, the week. We hadn't planned on watching Avatar on the big screen. And then I received an invite to go and see it in high frame rate, 3D, followed by a Q&A with Cameron and a bunch of the tech team. And I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to go see this theatrically... I'm going to see it the way he intended. So I might as well go to the screening. So like three days before Dan and I sat down to rewatch Avatar and I felt like I hadn't seen it because I haven't, I mean, I saw it like 10 years ago when it came out and I haven't seen it since. So I remembered big swaths of it, but I didn't remember it, like remember it. And I was really taken by the story. I'm like, okay, so this is clearly better than I remember. Okay. I can give it some credit. And then we went to see way of the water. And I was like, Holy shit. Like, this is on another level altogether. And I mean, 
I know that Cameron is a really good storyteller, but it's amazing, especially because I watched this kind of like splat in the middle of like the prestige movie season where I had already seen a bunch of like highly acclaimed critical films and there was a lot of good stuff in that mix. And then you watch a James Cameron movie and you're like, okay, so clearly he's a visual storyteller because there is almost like no dialogue and what little dialogue it is, there is, it's kind of lame, but fuck, does it look amazing? And Jesus, like, does he manage to actually get points across where some writers would take four pages to tell whatever. Uh-huh. He's like two sentences and it's done. And you got the same thing out of it because you've seen it. And you're like, okay, I, I'm appreciating Cameron on a totally different level. And I was like, I really, really liked the way at the water. Like I, I do admit that for me, part of the charm of it is the fact that they've managed to do 3D in a way that I've never in my life seen a 3D movie where my eyes at some point didn't tire and I stopped seeing the 3D. Like I watched the entirety of Avatar The Way of the Water and never once did I take my glasses off, feel like I need to close my eyes. Like the technicality of it is just on another level. And then on top of it, it's just a really good movie. Like it's super immersive. The story starts and you're right into it. I I don't know. Like he's just a really good storyteller. Like I can't take that away from him. So Avatar is my number ten. I know it's higher on your list. Yeah, it's higher on my list. But let's talk about it now. Yeah, let's talk. About um, it. So, like you, I'm just going to tell Avatar story real quick. Uh, so I saw the first Avatar in the theater um, opening weekend, 3D. And it was very much like your rewatch, where immediately I fell in love with this movie. I thought it was absolutely spectacular. I was blown away by what he was doing with 3D because this was the movie that brought 3D back. Uh, We did not have 3D in theaters before Avatar, if people don't remember, or if you're really young. Um, And I cried towards the end of the movie, had a really incredible emotional reaction to it. Uh, I acknowledge that the storytelling, while James Cameron is just inherently, he's just a good storyteller and an incredible blockbuster action filmmaker, as well as a pioneering visual effects technician. I say technician because I think he does operate on that level. Um, It's probably one of the weakest stories that James Cameron has ever done, but he's also, I think he's very deliberately and purposefully telling an incredibly simplistic story that operates more on kind of a uh, primal uh, reptile hot, you know, hindbrain sort of emotional gut response storytelling filmmaking rather than trying to get cerebral about it. And he's really good at that. It's very effective. Yeah. And I think it gets at the fact that like, this is why he is such a successful filmmaker. It is Mm -hmm. so much money because they speak to a really wide audience. Yeah. And, and so I, I was excited to watch the movie again. And so I watched it at home. And, of course, it's at home, so I'm watching in 2D on my TV. I'm going, oh, this 
oh, this felt like it was so much better than the theater. And I was kind of bummed because it's like, God, apparently I need to watch this in a theater in 3D. Otherwise, this movie isn't all that enjoyable. So I just kind of tucked Avatar away. And it wasn't until this one was about to come out that I wasn't able to, I, I didn't have the time to get out to the 3D re-release of it, unfortunately. I really wanted to. Uh, but I did the next best thing where about six months ago, um, I loaded up my, my 3D Blu-ray into my Oculus Quest and I watched it that way so I could watch the movie again in 3D. I haven't seen it since it came out in like whatever it was, like 2010, 20, 2009, 2010, around there. Yeah. Um, so it's been like a decade since I'd seen this movie. And like a lot of people, I'd sort of like started to like degrade the quality of this thing in my mind, especially since there's been a lot of naysayers over that decade of like Avatar was really a crap movie, blah, 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 blue alien cat people who cared. This thing has no cultural relevance. There's a lot of people who want to pile on to Avatar over the last decade. And so I loaded up this movie again. And like you, I had the exact same response where it's like 20 minutes into this movie. I'm like, my God, God, Cameron is such an efficient storyteller. It's like, here's this thing that any other movie would have spent 20 minutes building and getting across in a very kind of clumsy manner, which would result in a three-hour movie. I'm looking at you, the Batman. Um, and instead, Cameron has done it in two minutes. He succinctly gets it across, dramatizes it in an effective enough way, and we've moved on. We've got all the information we needed to, all the exposition is out of the way, and we're off to the races. And he is really good at that sort of thing. And in a way that I think a lot of modern-day filmmakers really need to go back and look at what Cameron does when he does this stuff and like pull 10 pages out of their screenplays, because... There, there's no reason you should not be following his lead on this because Cameron is right. And I enjoyed the movie all over again. I forgot how good it actually is. It's not the greatest movie in the world, but on a spectacle level, it's incredible. And the story is good. And it's emotionally affecting, regardless of like how quote unquote good it is. It does emotionally hit you. And so that has value. So fast forward, Wave Water comes out. We go see it opening weekend, watching in 3D. I did not see the high frame rate version. Um, and I absolutely loved this movie. I thought it was great. I thought it was better than the first movie. On a technical level, uh, my jaw's on the floor. There, He's doing stuff in this movie that just, like, is blowing me away. And... If you work in, uh, it's the sort of thing where, like, if you know anyone who works in VFX, they're nerding out about shit in this movie that you'll never notice. Like, oh, look, look at like the interaction with the water there, and you're like, huh? And but even even if you're not aware of all of that under the hood stuff, there's still a lot there where you're just like, wow, it looks incredible. And the other thing that was two two other big things I took away from it. One is that. I missed having James Cameron in the in the cinematic world because there's no one who does a big action blockbuster scene like James Cameron does. 
you know, as like I talked about how I'm still on the Marvel train and how I love those movies. And we've had like last like 25 years of Marvel movies and just like the one action scene on the big boat as they're fighting and it's tilting on its side blows every single action scene in every single Marvel movie I've ever seen out of the water. It's like, oh my God, how I missed action filmmaking at this high level competency because I feel like we haven't had it in a really long time because all of these action scenes have kind of moved into the realm where every shot is a visual effect shot. Now suddenly it's passing through so many other hands that it becomes homogenized once it's worked into the final cut. And here we have someone who has enough of a technical handle on that to maintain an uh, authorial kind of stamp on that and it is so expertly constructed and so well done you know what er- you know where everything is at every given point in time no matter how much chaos is going on it's entertaining it keeps moving it's always got like this is the angle you want to be seeing this from it's never flat it's riveting absolutely loved it and i miss having stuff like that the other thing is that this is a movie where all of the protagonists are cg all of the antagonists are people. Yeah. And that's very specifically, you know, that's on purpose because it's a, it's a conservation uh, message movie and that's fine. I'm on board with that because I agree with the message, but it gets to a point where I had more emotion and empathy for a CG alien whale that does not exist than I did seeing actual human beings that were dying. And by the time people are getting killed, I'm like, yeah, fuck those humans. They suck. They should die. And then think about what they did. And I thought it like I had a moment where I realized, wait a minute, this is a movie that with its message got me to go against my own biological imperative to value human life above all else. And instead I'm valuing the lives of things that do not and cannot exist more than actual people. That's astonishing that he was able to get me there. I I thought that was an amazing feat of storytelling. Yeah, no, that's an excellent, excellent point. I I really like Avatar. My number 10. What's your number 10? My number 10 is uh, Barbarian, the horror film about uh, two people who end up at the same Airbnb and then things start to get really weird. Um, I don't want to go too deep just in case anyone has, uh, hasn't seen this movie yet and doesn't want to be spoiled. Uh, but this is the horror movie from Zach Kreger with uh, Georgina Campbell and Bill Skarsgård. And uh, also Justin Long played an absolutely delicious role that I loved where he comes in midway through the movie and he's an actor who has just been accused of sexual assault and vehemently denies the charges. And the longer you spend with Justin Long, you realize, oh, you fucking did it. You did it and you're lying to yourself, which I thought was amazing. Um, 
I love this movie so much, and one of the reasons why I love this movie is that, especially for the first half of the movie, you genuinely don't know where this is headed. And it does a great job of just doling out. It's like, hey, here's a little bit of breadcrumbs. Don't you want to see where this leads? Here's a few more breadcrumbs. Don't you want to see where it leads? They just dole out the mystery just enough to keep you intrigued. It's like, I got to see where this goes. I got to see where this goes. And by the time it gets to the point where you're like, no, 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 too far, too far. We this Don't go any further. It's already too late. And it, it's just, it's so rare at this point with the number of horror movies that I've seen. I've seen a lot of horror movies. Um, it is so rare to see a movie where I don't know where it's headed. And that's one of the things that I think at this point in my life scares me the most is when I get into a movie that I feel like the filmmaker is like, yes, you are in my hands now, but I don't know where that path goes. I genuinely don't know that I find terrifying because now I don't have a roadmap and I'm just being dragged along. Yeah. And most of the time I know where any movie's headed because like, you know, you see enough, you can de deconstruct these things, you know, on the back of a napkin. It's not hard. Yeah. But sure. uh, barbarian, I think kind of like held it close to the chest for long enough that I was, it, it, it was kind of scary and then when it stops being scary it starts getting fun that's i think that that's what works so well with that movie it's it it pulls you along into this horror trope as far as it can possibly take you and just when you think okay well there's nothing else it can do to scare me then it devolves into this like just nutty sort of like crazy off the rails movie and you're like okay mm -hmm. i can i can follow this road like i can go there with you and still thoroughly enjoy this yeah, and by the time you get to the second half of the film, when it starts to get, like, really wild, that's when either the movie's going to lose you or you're going to love it. Exactly. And in, in my case, I, I loved it. I thought it was great. I had such a fun time, and I can't, just see what, I can't wait to see what, uh, what this director does next. Yeah, and I think people should really do themselves a favor and sort of try to follow that. If you I mean, if you can, if you can disassociate yourself from the fact that it's no longer like a straight up horror movie, I think that there's a lot to enjoy there. You just have to be willing to go with the ride. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, I mean, that takes a lot of guts for, you know, a first time filmmaker. I don't actually know if he's a first time filmmaker. I'm assuming. He but it he, he did what other movie that was like a comedy and was like a really kind of horrible failure that he's like, I'm sorry, I I unleashed that movie on the world. And yeah, I guess he was uh, he was part of the the group uh, Whitest Kids You Know. Okay, so I mean, for somebody that's pretty early on in their career, the fact that they're willing to sort of take that chance and hope that the, hope that the audience will go with you on this like crazy wild trip I think takes a lot of guts and I think that for those that would give themselves the permission to enjoy it there's a lot to love here it's so it's such a fun ride I, I really enjoyed Vibrarian I and it, it's also one of those movies that feels like how did he get anyone to say yes here's some money to go make this movie you know and and from hearing from the filmmaker it was really just kind of like the he lucked into getting someone who like got the movie and said, yeah, I can. Okay. I, I'm in for this ride. And then the studio originally was going to just like be a streaming movie. 
and then seeing what they were doing and going, yeah, no, we're going to take this theatrically. You know, it's like it just kind of got boosted up the the entire trip. And it's one of those movies where it's like you look at it on the page and it's like, this is weird. And there's no way you're ever going to get money for this. And you're you're also doing a lot of things where it's like this is in the rule book. You don't do this in a script. So you got to take this out. And he does it and it works. Yeah. You know, so it's I think Barbarian is a special movie. Yeah, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, my number nine is Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. And this is, I think we were recording already. We were talking about movies that take you by surprise. This was the movie that really took me by surprise. I really was not expecting anything from a spinoff of Shrek, which is in itself like the third movie in a... How are we still getting Shrek stuff in 2022? This is, this is exactly the conversation, right? So, like, I my expectation for this movie was zero. Like, literally zero. I, I know that we had a presentation as part of Spark's online content on the making of the film, and I thought, well, I'm going to wait until after I've seen the movie to actually watch this, so... You know, I really was not expecting anything from this. And to the point where Dan and I had put this on one night when we were sitting at the around the kitchen table, we were building Lego. We're like, I'm like, you know, I kind of feel like we should like have something in the background. So we put, put some boots on. And five minutes in, we're like, okay, this movie is way better than maybe we're giving it credit for. I think we should move this to the living room. So we actually turned it off and stopped building our Legos and we put it on the big TV. And it was the biggest surprise of the year for me. This movie, I swear to God, is the movie that nobody wanted, that everybody needs to see. It's smart. It's very funny. And it looks spectacular. I think the thing that DreamWorks Animation is doing that none of the other studios are doing is they're giving their filmmakers and their artists free range to kind of develop their own style. They don't have a studio style and it's paying off in spades. I think it's really, really doing them wonders when it comes to their animated content. I find like, I I feel bad for them because like the animation world for anybody that knows it, especially when you get into the feature film universe, it's very much, there's like one player and that player is Disney and you're either in that team or you're not in that team and Mm -hmm. they have the power to shut people down and to shut other films down and it's really sad that i that that sometimes the movies that really do deserve the attention don't get it i think this year you know netflix has enough um um they have enough momentum with uh pinocchio to maybe get it done uh maybe Uh, i'm not convinced but maybe but for me, the best animated film I saw this year is Puss in Boots. It was the most fun. It was the one that kept me guessing the most. It's the one that was most unexpected. And on top of it all, it looks amazing. Like It looks like no other movie that you've seen in the last couple of years. It, every, every shot in that film is a bloody painting. And the action sequences are amazing. Like there's an act, it opens on an action sequence and you're like jaw on floor, like, holy fuck, how did they get this done? Like, it just looks awesome. I cannot recommend this movie enough. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. You may not want to see it, but sit down with your kids and watch it. 
you're going to enjoy it. There really is something for everyone else. I gotta be honest, at this point, I would probably never on my own go and right. watch a, a Puss in Boots movie. Right. And my daughter is like old enough now that she's like, she doesn't have interest in Puss in Boots. Yep. Um, and, but at the same time, I've been hearing nothing but praise for this movie. Because when people finally see it, they're like, holy shit, this movie's great. I may have to actually sit down and watch this thing. Um, because I've, I've just like heard nothing but a claim for this thing. It's kind of gotten ridiculous at this point where it's like, I feel obligated to watch it now. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad people are finally catching on with it because it is legitimately so good. So good. So yeah, that's my number nine. Your number nine is actually, I have a funny story about your number nine, but go okay. ahead with your number nine. My number nine is, uh, Prey. The prequel to uh, Predator, uh, directed by Dan Trachtenberg and starring Amber, Amber Midthunder, which has the uh, the Predator coming to Earth. Um, I can't remember what year it is, but it's basically like you know during during you know uh, frontier for for trapper time when we're following a uh, Comanche tribe um, in in the plains. Um, where one woman in the tribe who desperately wants to be seen as a hunter amongst her male peers comes face to face with the predator and just taking the premise of predator and moving it into that kind of prequel territory where the predator has technology that the people have not seen or can't even comprehend at this point. And, and you couple that with the journey and the performance of Amber Mid Thunder, who I am convinced this is a star making performance from her that if she does not become a big thing. If we do not see action movies galore with Amber Midthunder in them. If she is not integrated into the Marvel universe in some way off the back of this movie, it will be a crime because she is so good in this movie. It has so much heart. I absolutely loved it. After the very first Predator movie, I think this is the best uh, the best of the sequels. And I honestly might even think this is better than the Schwarzenegger movie, if only it weren't for the fact that this movie, without that movie, this one wouldn't exist. And this is exactly it. I'm, I'm fully with you. I think on a um, storytelling and just like movie making proficiency level and acting level, this is so much better than the original Predator. But like you say, it wouldn't exist if the original Predator didn't exist as well. And the dedication to authenticity they, they went through with yeah. the movie. Because they wanted to make sure that it was as authentic as possible um, in dealing with the Comanche tribe. Um, so they had a lot of people that were involved with the film to make sure it was on that track. The one thing that I, I think was unfortunate is they really wanted to shoot the film in with people speaking Comanche and have it be subtitled and the um the compromise that they were allowed was they actually released a comanche audio track for it but it's shot in english so while you can hear it in comanche 
it, you, you, it's dubbed, so it's, you're going to deal with rubbery lips. So unfortunately, I prefer to watch it in English just because the, the sinking bugs me too much. Um, and I think that's, that's the one thing that I think is missed is I kind of wish they had been allowed to do that. Or even, like, this is very much possible, is, like, shoot it in both languages and then release both versions. Um, I know that sounds like a huge undertaking, but I it can be done, and I know this because I've done it. There was a film that I edited that they took on the challenge uh, because it was the First Nations project uh, they shot it in English, in Chipewyan, in Cree, and Slavey. And wow. so we did the English cut of the film, and then after that had to go back and build out the other three languages. And so basically replace all of the dialogue scenes with the other dialects, which became a real challenge because I, as the editor, did not speak those other three dialects. So we were... Yeah. We're, we are counting on, you know, various elders who were the the consultants on the film to make sure that I was making this make sense. So it is possible you can do that, um, but unfortunately, Fox made the decision that, like, no, this is this is the best we'll give you. So it, a missed opportunity, but it's a very over in the big scheme of things, it's a small thing. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a really, really good, solid film. And my funny story about Prey is um, we usually have family over on Christmas Eve because we do our our celebrations on Christmas Eve. And so after dinner, after, you know, before, or was this New Year? Sorry, this was New Year, New Year's Eve. Um, so after dinner and after some coffee, you know, what are you going to do? Like my family doesn't really play games. So um Usually, Marina is in charge of finding the movie for the family to watch. <laughs> and you have to keep in mind, we have three kids under 10. So my sister decided she was going to take the girls upstairs to watch whatever it is that they ended up watching. And Marina was in charge of entertaining the family. And I'm like, what movie are we going to watch? It's not going to put everybody to sleep. I'm like, I know, we'll watch Prey. Because <laughs> there's a little something for everyone. And holy shit, it went over really well. So I'm really thrilled. That's great. For a long time, my go-to Christmas movie on Christmas Eve was Seven, <laughs> until my mother said I wasn't allowed to show because <laughs> it's traumatizing, and I'm like, okay. And then you switched over to Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Oh, I maybe I should have switched. <laughs> well, I remember like Fincher's version of uh, Dragon Tattoo. It got released at Christmas time, and they released it with the tagline, "The Feel Bad Movie of the Year." Hmm. Okay, I vaguely remember this. Oh, man. Um, my number eight movie is Not Okay, which is uh, Quinn Shepard's film. Mind you, I watched this because of Zoe Deutsch, who I really, really like, and I think she's a super underrated actress. I think she's great, but she and she's so much better than the movies that she's generally in, so I wasn't expecting much. I really like this movie. I think it's streaming on... Hulu, I think it is. I've meant to look this up. I brought this movie up now like two or three times. And I, I keep forgetting to look to see what Yeah, we talked about it on the show before. Yeah. So for those that don't remember, so Zoe Dutch plays this uh, woman who wants to be a writer. Uh, she decides she's going to fake going to France to a writer's retreat. And then there's like a, an attack where she's supposed to be and she sleeps through the whole thing. 
And then when she wakes up out of it, she wakes up the next morning, everyone's like, are you okay? And she now needs to pretend that she has survived this terrorist attack in order to stay in the conversation and not be outed as somebody that's been lying the entire time. Um, I thought, it, I, and I still think, I, I did. I haven't rewatched the entire thing. I did rewatch the second half of it the other day um, just because I kind of needed a reminder. I'm like, was this really as good as I remember it? And it really is. I think it's a really interesting and a really well-observed um, sort of um, uh, I don't even know what to say. Like it's, it's just a really great insight into current culture and, and, and social media and the need to um, be in the conversation even when you're not really a part of it. I, I think it's a really fantastic film and Zoe Dutch is just so watchable. Um, I really like this movie. I highly recommend it. I think it's really great. And I don't think enough people have seen it. So I, I really hope that it gets a little bit more uh, more attention because it is, I think, quite solid and a pretty important movie to watch. I mean, including me, um, after we talked about this on the on the show before, I added this to my queue. But it's one of those movies that I just, I have not gotten around to yet. I keep, like, I'll go through my queue, like, okay, stuff to watch. And I see it there, like, yeah, I'm gonna get around to that one, but not tonight. And so I'm just yeah. like, it's. I I will see it at some point. I just have not seen it yet. No, I I can feel that. I can feel that. I have a lot. I should have fast tracked this as I saw your list. No, 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 don't worry about it. Okay, your number eight is actually kind of on my list because it was a movie that I kept putting off and putting off and putting off and on my way. I'm finally gonna watch this. And I okay, that, my number eight is actually kind of atypical for me because I don't typically put um, Pixar movies don't usually end up on my top list and top of the year. I always enjoy them, but very rarely do am I like so overwhelmingly bowled over by them that I'm just like, oh yes, one of the most fantastic movies ever. Um, but that was the case for me with Turning Red. I really enjoyed this movie and I thought it was very incredibly well done. Um, maybe it's the fact that it takes place in Toronto and had that uh, that Canadian affiliation. I don't know. But it is the uh, the story of a, a young girl who finds out that she's basically got a family curse where she turns into a giant red panda um, when she gets emotionally excited. And it becomes a metaphor for her dealing with um, dealing with her adolescence and also trying to carve out a life that is her own apart from her parents and dealing with a um, a mother who is I don't want to say controlling but definitely it's like has has a certain amount of hands around her daughter's life because she cares, but it's also got that sort of like, you know, um, second generation immigrant element to it. Of And this is a theme that I think we also saw a lot in 2022, which is the kind of uh, generational trauma that gets handed down from parent to child, whether or not the parent intends on it. And how it may like come out in a different form, but you have 
someone's parents who in the older ways were this way to their kid and now they've grown up and have kids of their own and they're passing on some of that trauma to their own kids and uh, there's another movie we'll talk about that has that in it as well but I think this movie does a really good job with those with those subjects and makes an incredibly fun film as well I agree. I actually cried watching Turning Red. I think part of it is the whole generational drama, uh, trauma that gets passed on. I really related to the relationship um, between the mother and daughter. There was just something about the fact that, I mean, I, I think because I see a lot of that in my own life, but I, I did get emotionally attached to this movie and it would have been higher on my list. It's just there was a, a lot of other stuff that I really enjoyed, but I really, really liked Turning Red. And I thought it was, like, technically a really, really well-made film. Um, and it's nice to see, like you say, it's nice to see Canada represented in that made movie. Like, we don't have to step in. Like, in live action, we often step in for other places. But, hey, mm-hmm. we can be ourselves, you know, even in animation. I thought that was pretty cool. I, I really like this movie. And it, it's quite funny, too. And it's this really great study about friendship and... Um, maybe not always getting along with your friends, but always respecting them. I, I thought it was just overall really well done. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a nice high bar for, for Pixar. Agreed, agreed. Um, my number seven is, I think, oh, it might be the only, I think it's the only doc that actually made it onto my top ten. Um, Good night, OP. Okay, so we watched this because Dan is obsessed with space and aliens. And so when I told him there was a documentary about the Mars rovers, and it was it's streaming on Disney Plus, it's it's a it's a Nat Geo documentary. We thought we'd put it in one night, and oh my god, I legitimately cried watching this documentary. And all it is is a Talking head stock about the two rovers that are wandering around on Mars, like, well, now there's no rovers wandering around on Mars. Maybe there's still one? I actually don't remember. Um, but it's really emotional, and I think in part it kind of, this ties in a little bit into my fascination with Apollo 10 and a half, um, which follows the Apollo 11 mission in kind of this very awkward, odd way that you don't expect, but it's these documentaries well in the case of the night opie this documentary about this thing that you know happened in the background of our lives that is actually really important but also has like this very like tangible emotional uh connection to all of these people that have this involvement in you know the mars program um, it's it's a big step for humanity, but it's also really interesting, at least I thought for me, the way that like we as humans interact with these robots that are on another planet thousands of years away, light years away, in this very human way, to the point where like when they created the, the rovers, they actually gave them faces that almost look human, like they have eyes. Why do they have eyes? There's no real reason for them. They need eyes. But, you know, it's this human thing. You'll make them look like us, kind of. I don't know. This doc is just, it's so good. It's so, so good. I was so invested. And it's funny because, like, as somebody that I, I mean, I think we're pretty, like, our household at least is pretty in tune with, you know, what's happening at NASA. Like, we watch a lot of 
way more than most people, I think. We watch a lot of like launches, and Dan is always like, this launch is happening tomorrow, and we'll often watch them live. And so, you know, I feel like I know maybe more through Dan than most people. And still half of this was like totally porn. It was weird. It's it was the strangest emotional roller coaster watching this thing because I felt like I knew what was happening and I also didn't know what was happening. And it's really like on a technical level, it's super well done. ILM did a bunch of recreations, uh, like about things that we don't have video footage of, like the entries, like like the robots actually moving around on Mars and it all looks seamless. Like it's a really, really, really great documentary. It plays much better than you might anticipate. And they managed to get an emotional response from me in a way that I didn't, I really was not expecting. It made my top 10. I really liked Goodnight OPL a lot. A lot, a lot. This is one of those ones that until it showed up on your list, I hadn't even heard of this movie. I, you know, and that's the thing with, there's a lot of documentaries and I, I mean, I do not, I never do well with trying to watch them all. It's just usually when the Oscar shortlist shows up, I'm like, what have I not seen that I need to catch up with? Mm -hmm. Uh, This one just had a little bit, somebody had mentioned it to me in passing and I'm like, oh, and this is streaming. So we, we thought we'd catch up with it one day and it's, it's, I, I was really impressed. I really, really. Um, your number seven. I have a, My seven. number seven is a movie that we saw together. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, Mark by Lodge's The Menu uh, with Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy. I absolutely love this movie. And as I'm already talking about it and looking at my list, I feel like this deserves to be higher in the list. I actually just watched this again um, with someone because she's like, what do you want to, what do you want to watch? We can watch this thing we haven't seen or this thing we haven't seen. I'm like, no, I want to show you the menu because you haven't seen it. And I need to see you see it. Uh, I think this movie is a delight. And now that I've seen this movie three times, I think the, the screenplay is like damn near perfect. I don't know what I would change about the script. Um, it's basically about an incredibly high-end restaurant uh, that caters to like 1% clientele, like 1% of the 1% and is out on an, uh, out on a secluded Island where you got to take a ferry to get there, you know, big fine dining, like six course meal. And uh, this night, the, uh, the, the, uh, the staff has basically got other plans in mind other than just serving a nice meal. And then the whole film expertly plays out as this perfect metaphor for the toxic and destructive relationship between artist and audience. And everyone in the audience is represented at this restaurant in the clientele everyone from the bored rich person who you know has really no idea what they're what they're currently consuming and doesn't really care because they're they're so rich they don't need to care to the the 
star fucking actor who just wants to be, you know, near someone else who's famous to the irrepressible fanboy with his wind with his nose pressed up to the window of an industry that he is convinced he has wisdom about because he consumes all knowledge about it but when pressed to actually participate in it has no clue what the hell he's doing because how could he he's 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 on the outside and he's meant to be on the outside but he thinks he's on the inside so all, all of this and more, I think The Menu is such a delightful, perfect movie. I, If there's any justice, I would say that Ray Fiennes actually deserves an Academy Award for this movie because I think the performance he's giving in this film walks this narrow tightrope so carefully that he's playing on such a subtle level where he... like he's constantly giving you like three different emotions at once. And it is, it is a performance of tiny little tweaks that could go in any direction if done by a different actor and not played as perfectly. And he does it effortlessly. And also I can't point to another performance in another movie to say, yes, that's what he's doing. He's doing something very unique and interesting in this film, and I think it's it's absolutely great. I loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this as well, and I think you're right about Ray Fiennes. And, you know, I, I think it's funny because he feels like this actor that's already peaked and who has been not set aside, but he, like, the movies that he makes now always feel like like, they're clearly important. Like, he's very selective about the movies that he makes. But I, if you're not paying close attention, it's easy to write him off as this guy that's, like, is a has-been. Which I think is totally the wrong way to read him. He's just... Um, I don't know. He's just a, such a fascinating actor. And I think Anya Taylor-Joy, for me, is really turning into, like, somebody that... I mean, I've always liked her. Like, from the time I watched The Witch, I think she's been a really fascinating actress and she mm-hmm. the films that she makes are always worth paying attention to at least that's what I feel like um, so I really enjoyed this I thought it was really really well done this and the other movie that didn't make my list that I'm kind of bummed about is no because they're both movies that I really liked but there was just other stuff I liked more but not taking anything away from the fact that they're really 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 well made and probably deserve way more credit than they're getting generally speaking. i i agree which is um, which is why they're on my list yeah and i mean and my number six i kind of felt like i needed to put this on the list because again it's not a movie that really needs any additional help but i really liked fresh um i it's not without its problems and the more i think of it sometimes the more i think oh don't think about it too much because it takes away from the mystique of the movie because I don't think it's quite as smart as it comes across maybe the first time that you see it Um, I think that there's a lot of love going into it just like blind affection for just what it's doing that's kind of different from everything else but once you start nitpicking it kind of starts to fall apart and yet (laughs) I think that there's enough here to really love and for me um, Daisy Edgar Jones is really like the highlight. She's so great. And the fact the movie just kind of ends 
just like randomly it just ends like you think there should be more here and then it's just over <laughs> it's just over in the weirdest of ways i like the way that this is unexpected um i kind of feel like there is a somebody else brought this up i think it might have been kurt there's kind of like uh, the world building here is really interesting like the fact that there's this male okay so spoiler warning i guess the fact mm-hmm. that there's this mail order program for people that if you want, you can mail order. Your- it's basically HelloFresh for, for cannibals. Right? But I mean, I feel like there's a story there that I would love to see, kind of like in the same way that John Wick's built mm. this entire universe. Like, I would watch that movie about those people, um, but maybe not. Like, if you give it to me, I might not enjoy it. But I think that's mind, one of the like, things I love most about it was that, like, it's not just here's a guy who's like he's a sick person he's a cannibal no it's a guy who's a sick person and has a home business for other sick people for other sick people and i thought i thought that was such an an interesting little little you know it's a little bit of mustard to throw onto this premise that i i really dug and i thought like you know kind of kind of spun it off and yeah it does open it up for like hey there's more story there because there's obviously still an industry that he is supplying yeah and now he's gone so now what yeah but i mean i think i honestly think that that maybe has carried into my love of the movie this fact that you know there's this other like sort of overall story that sort of keeps playing out even after whatever story we've been fed I don't know. I really liked Fresh. I thought it was a lot of fun. I had not expected it to be that good. And I really enjoyed it. And it was a really great introduction uh, to Daisy Edgar Jones, who I hadn't really seen anything else. Now I, I see her name and I'm like, ooh, what's this? So Yeah, I like this movie a lot too. It didn't make my top ten. It's probably it's somewhere there in my honorable mentions, but I really enjoyed this too. Um, for me the real standout was Sebastian Stan because he's played like a real kind of nasty piece of work and he's clearly having a lot of fun doing it. It's for a movie that is essentially about someone being kidnapped and harvested for food um, and entering into an uncomfortable um, hostage kidnapper kind of relationship. It, uh, it's a lot of fun. It totally is. It's, as long as you have like a little bit of a dark sense of humor, this movie is a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed this movie. And 2022 kind of, uh, it, it, it had a cannibalism thing going on. Uh, we had fresh, we had bones and all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we had the Dahmer series on Netflix. Yes. You know, it's like at that point, it's like I I was convinced by the time we got to the menu that there was going to be cannibalism in that movie, and I was surprised there wasn't. Yeah, so I don't know for whatever reason, cannibalism had a thing in twenty twenty two. It totally did, though. You're totally right. Yeah. Um, and your number six. My number six is the aforementioned Jordan Peele's Nope. Yeah, which, which really while not really while while technically not making your list, absolutely made mine. Um, this is the the movie with Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer um, about a uh, a California horse ranch that is suddenly dealing with a um, potential alien 
that is uh, that it's basically haunting the ranch more or less. Um, I thought this movie was so clever and so interesting. When I first when I first left the theater, I was like, okay, that was good. I enjoyed it a lot, but I think it's probably a little less consequential than Jordan Peele's other movies. And then the more I thought about it, it's like, no, this movie's doing a lot of really interesting stuff and has really interesting things to say. Um, but it's doing it on a much deeper level. Instead, Jordan Peele's gotten to that point where he's the he's no longer doing subtext as text. He's putting, he's keeping the subtext in the subtext and then delivering an entertaining film on the surface. Um, so it's, I think it's really easy to kind of miss what he's doing, but it essentially becomes a movie about the, um, the hazards or the destructive nature of um, spectacle and our reaction to turn everything into spectacle. And I think it it sounds so oblique when you put it on paper. It's like, oh, how does that connect to a movie about aliens, you know, invading a ranch? But it works so well. And he incorporates it so cleverly. And it's the type of... I watched... I, I, I re-watched the um, Tremors the other night. Mm. And because it's a movie I love, I hadn't seen it in a while... And while I'm watching, it's going, God, we haven't gotten a good, like, mid-tier creature feature in a long time. And this movie is so fun. We need more movies like this. And I was lamenting about this to a friend of mine. And he said to me, well, that's, nope. We got one of those this year. And it's like, holy crap, you're right. That's exactly where nope fits. It's a really fun movie. It's a creature feature with a lot of mystery loaded up front. And it's just a damn good ride. It's like, you know, this is th- honestly, I maybe like us the least of Jordan Peele's movies. Yeah. But it's still a good movie, and he's three for three as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, I fully agree with you 110%. And quite honestly, I mean, I maybe should have prefaced my list by saying that my six to 10, my six to, let's say, 20. Any day you would have asked me, they probably would have changed and Nope would have been in that top 10. I was quite literally just too lazy to recalibrate the list anymore. (laughs) This is the top 10 that I'm sticking with. It's what I'm going with. And I know that there are movies that didn't quite make it, but they're in my honorable mentions and they could have easily been in that top 10. Um, Because for me, like my five to one are pretty much locked in from the time that I started to like think about a list. But anything after five was kind of like any of these movies could have made that list, and Nope was definitely up there. And I was, leg- I think it's safe to say that I was legitimately obsessed when this movie came out. I must have been like I must have read hundreds, like I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of articles on. The movie, the analysis, the making of, the fact that the entire sky is CG, the design of the alien, um, the how the VFX were done. Like towards the end of the year, VFVS put out like two or three webinars, and one of them was on the making of the visual effects of Nope, which meant I had to rewatch Nope in order to watch the VFX making of, which I redid happily. Like. This is a movie that is continually at the back of my mind and probably I should have recalibrated my list and made sure it was in my top 10. So I'm kind of bummed that I didn't, but I'm so, I, when I saw it on yours, I'm like, 
it's okay. I'll give you opportunity to talk <laughs> about how much I like this movie. And I'm totally with you. Like for me, of the Jordan Peele trilogy, like Us is definitely for me the weakest of the bunch. But it's still not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he is continuing to push boundaries with every film and he's not afraid to take risk both on a storytelling and a thematic level and the fact that he's upping the game every time like if you don't know like the technical proficiency of nope is on another fucking level like the amount of work that went to the cg of this movie is just mind-boggling you could spend days reading about how they and i did so that's why I can tell you, you can spend days reading about the, the making of the movie because the VFX was so specific and Peel had such a specific eye for what he wanted and he was not willing to stop until he had exactly what was in his mind. And that to me is like a level of proficiency that you don't see a lot in modern filmmakers. You either have filmmakers that are really great at making movies or filmmakers that are really great at VFX and you don't get filmmakers that do the two things together really well. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Peele is one of those few filmmakers that fits in that middle category where he can he can tell he's a really great storyteller that is also proficient in technology to the point where he can incorporate, you know, and push the envelope on the visuals to tell his story uh, at the, without risking the storytelling itself. And that's such a rarity that you really have to applaud it when you see it. So now this is all to say that Nope should have probably been in my top 10 and I'm really sorry it's not, but it's really, really good. And, and also Jordan Peele, just, he understands that more than anything else, the only thing we really want is to hear Michael Wincott's raspy, beautiful velvet voice truth as he speaks aloud the lyrics to one-eyed purple people eater yeah so true (laughs) i'm I'm making a joke but michael wincott truly does have one of the most amazing voices in cinema and the fact that he is not in everything feels like a crime agreed agreed um, so this is where my list was pretty much solid when, you know, I started thinking of my top 10. I'm like, okay, these are my top five movies in this order. And so my number five is Todd Field's Tar. Um, I love Todd Field. I think he's a spectacular filmmaker. I haven't always loved his movies, though I, he's one of those filmmakers who I appreciate what he's doing. And even if I don't fully engage with the filmmaking, I still really like what I'm seeing. I, for me, I'm not there. It's probably the weakest link in his sort of stable of films. But, I mean, Tar on paper looks like a difficult watch. It's like a three-hour movie about Kate Blanchett, who is a, a conductor of an orchestra. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this is probably going to be the worst three hours of my life. And then from the opening scene, you're like, holy fuck, this is why Kate Blanchett is Kate Blanchett. Because she's spectacular. It's impossible to look away. I watched this, I am not afraid to say, twice. Almost back to back. 
literally, I swear to God, if it wasn't as long as it is, I probably would have watched it again right after it finished. Because there's just... Like, it's not just Blanchett's magnetism. Like, the movie is doing a lot of interesting things. And, I mean, it's easy to spend a lot of time talking about, like, the social ramification and cultural ramifications of what Todd Field is going for. But honestly... For a movie that's so fucking bleak, it's really fun to watch Kate Blanchett kind of like lose her shit. It's so good. I love this movie so much. Tar is highly like at the utmost highest recommendation. It's so good. So good. I, I saw this too. I watched it over the holiday. Um, I did like it, even though it didn't make my top 10. I had a weird kind of reaction to this movie. Um, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it. Kate Blanchett is amazing in this movie. I think that the Oscars either is probably going to be her, um, but it's. I think it's going to come down to either her or Michelle Yeoh. I, I think, I think, I think it I, should go to Michelle Yeoh just on principle. Yeah, but I, I think that's where the Oscar race is, and Kate Blanchett's performance in this movie is at that level. It's a, it's a really interesting kind of portrait of of just how um i don't know how ego and celebrity um often results in abusive people yeah. uh, especially in creative fields and i think by i've heard a lot of criticisms about the fact that it's centered on a female conductor um and that is ultimately what the film is about, which in a way, isn't it just dragging down women there when there aren't enough women in these fields? And it's like, well, I feel like by not having it be a man in the role, it sort of like takes the misogyny question out of it and makes it about the actual position. Yes. Um, and, and you can look at it on that level that rather than just looking at it on a sexism level. So I, I think that is the right approach. And I think you get some interesting stuff out of that. What the, the weird watch I had with Tar is I was watching the movie. I was, I was digging it. I was liking it, but not maybe not loving it, really respecting it. Um, but also sort of feeling like, well, as a biopic, this is, yeah, and it could be a more interesting biopic. Maybe the subject just isn't, interesting enough or maybe there was a better way to tell this story because the the punchline here being is tar is not a real person this is not a biopic but it sure feels like one so much so that i got to the end of the movie and i was like i want to learn more about the real tar a person who does not exist. And I was having a hard time figuring out why I wasn't able to find out more information about the real person. All the info was about the movie until I like clued in. It's like, Oh wait, this is a hundred percent fiction. And then suddenly my opinion of the movie changed because the movie so effectively convinced me that this was a biopic about a real living person and that it was depicting events that, were dramatized versions of what actually happened 
like surely there must be like video of some of this stuff on YouTube, like about the real incident or something like that. You know, it's like there must be stuff like that. Nope, all one hundred percent fiction. Then suddenly my respect for the film actually shot up that it was able to sort of hit me on two levels, not just tell the story, but also so perfectly mimic, like it's making a biopic of a real person and fool me into thinking it was. I thought that more than anything else was the tremendous feat of this film. Is it feels real. So it's, um, and now I've spoiled that aspect for people who haven't seen the movie yet. I feel like that's the best way to watch it. If you go in thinking that this is a biopic of a real person, I think you end up with the best possible experience. Okay, that's really funny because it never once in my mind even, like, maybe because I knew that it wasn't the biopic, so it never even crossed my mm. mind. That's very See, I, ha- I had gotten into my head that it absolutely was a biopic. And... And so that's what I was expecting. And I I do believe that the film is trying to fool you into thinking that. I could go with that. Yeah. With that. Or or at least the marketing surrounding it is is trying to make you believe that. Yeah. I, the one thing that I, I find difficult with Todd Field's movies is I think he's a really interesting filmmaker and he doesn't make enough movies. So every time he does make a movie, like the expectation is nobody can see it because this is a podcast, not video. But it's like through the roof. It's like, I want this movie to be the most amazing thing ever. And sometimes when it doesn't hit there, I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's disappointing. So the fact that this one actually like surpassed my expectation um, for me was just like an added bonus. I read something really interesting this morning, like in my related field of uh, of interesting passing things i was flipping through and there was a story that i read about todd field and tom cruise and how tom cruise had given field input on how to deal with harvey weinstein um because uh when in the bedroom came out back in i don't know the early 2000s um it had done really well i think it was at sundance and weinstein had picked it up out of the festival and I don't know how Todd Field and Tom Cruise knew each other, but I guess Todd had uh, made some comment about how he was worried that they were going to, Weinstein was going to recut the movie and it was going to basically like ruin it. And mm-hmm. Tom Cruise, I'll link to the story, but Tom Cruise basically said, what you want to do is you want to listen to all the changes Weinstein gives you, make all the edits. And then when it bombs during the test screenings, remind him of how well it played at Sundance then you'll get the cut of the movie that you want <laughs> and Todd Field that was, said that that was the best uh, advice that anybody could have given him and it totally worked because <laughs> the movie that God, that's amazing. turned out to be the one that screened at Sundance so I'll link to that story because it was big news today I guess he's been doing a lot of press with uh, so for those that haven't seen it it's probably worth reading it's a really fun story but okay I've sidetracked us let's get back to things and your number five. My number five is Emily the Criminal. Uh, this is the John Patton Ford movie with Aubrey Plaza. Um, this is the Aubrey Plaza movie, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's Aubrey Plaza, if you have never seen her before, as hyperbolic as that sounds, it is true. 
this is a gut punch of a movie where she is basically running the gamut and like really stretching and showing what she can actually do. Um, it's about a young woman who's up to her eyeballs in debt, uh, has student loans, um, is struggling to get by doing uh, catering delivery work, and on top of it has a, um, a, a criminal record for, I think, like a DWI or something like that, and has trouble, you know, she's having trouble getting ahead. And she's having trouble just staying afloat. And she manages to basically stumble her way into a uh, small-time criminal organization that's basically paying people to go buy stuff with with, uh, stolen credit cards. And then they just, like, hawk the goods afterwards. And all she has to do is, like, make the purchase and not get caught not knowing if this credit card is going to like bounce or trigger a security response or something. And this starts her um, incursion into the criminal world where all she sees now is opportunity to get herself out of the situation that she's been in. So she gets in deeper and deeper and deeper into actually, it's actually becoming like a, a criminal, I don't want to say mastermind, but definitely a, a leader in this industry of, of, uh, of retail crime. And there are some scenes in this movie that are so tense and so riveting. It's like the entire movie feels like a white knuckle ride. And she is, Aubrey Plaza is so good in this movie. And and the uh, her her co-star as well, Theo Rossi, gives an incredible performance as well. It's like I absolutely love this movie way more than I expected to. I think it actually has like a really good kind of message and framework. It's in the film because it's not just about a woman who finds herself engaging in crimes and like what the crime world is like. It's it's more about like she was driven to this world just to survive because this is where the escalating income inequality is driving us all. Yeah. I, and I, I think it was very powerful for that. I agree a hundred percent. And you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm looking at her IMDb profile because I'm like, I kind of remember Aubrey Plaza always being there and I've seen her in stuff. And I've never really been able to figure out why she's a bit of a movie star because I haven't seen her in anything that's like, okay, she is a bankable actress. Like, nothing. Except for maybe, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie now, but uh, it doesn't even matter at this point. But I keep watching stuff with her in it. And it's Mm -hmm. almost like I'm hoping that she will live up to whatever hype I've built up in my head. I don't know if there actually is hype or if it's just in my mind. So I watched this, I think two or three days after watching little hours, which I fucking hated. Like I'm happy to say fucking hated little hours. I thought that movie was shit, total garbage. And then I'm like, I don't know why I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch Emily the criminal and holy shit. Maybe that's why that movie hits so well. 
It's so good. Mm -hmm. And like you see, she is so good in it. It was the first time that I was like, okay, so she clearly can act. She's clearly like got talent. Somebody please give her something else that's good for her to be in. Is clearly whoever she's working with, whoever management is, is doing her a disservice. She is so much better than the crap she's been in. So please, I'll be glad well, to get And the her. reason why we have this is because she produced this movie. So yeah, clearly she needs new management because she is quite capable of being like leading. I, I don't even think it's so much the management. I think it's that these roles for her aren't out there. Yeah, so she actually has to actively create them for herself. It's sort of the same thing that, uh, that Margot Robbie is doing right now yeah. too, where it's like Margot Robbie is like, she's a good enough actor. She's drop dead gorgeous. She could fit into playing leading roles in whatever anyone wants to she could she could not talk in Quentin Tarantino movies for the rest of her career if she wanted to but the way she gets the really interesting roles that she wants to be doing is she steps into producing and starts generating the projects for herself that she wants to be in and showing people what she is actively capable of doing yeah, I agree, and I think Abu Pazza clearly needs to be doing the same thing because she's way better than any of the material that's being offered to her, as is clear by um, Emily the Criminal. Like, that movie is so good, and I think it's so watchable and so like just easy to slip into. You like you, you know, some movies you kind of have to work yourself up to watching it mm-hmm. if somebody's recommended it to you. This is not that movie. It's just it's such an easy watch if you want it to be. More people need to see it. It's and it, it's a movie that on paper you almost feel like, okay, I feel like I know this. I feel like I've seen this movie. But it gets in there with a level of of cinema verite and kind of sense of grounded reality that feels so authentic that everything unfolds in a, no, this is the way in which you think this would happen if your life was a movie is not how it happens. This is how it really happens. Yeah, exactly. And the, the movie ends up feeling incredibly authentic. And if this is a promise for what we're going to see for the next 20 years from Aubrey Plaza, then I am in. I I fully, fully agree. Fully, fully. Um, my number four is Holy Spider. So I take, Zero credit for knowing about this movie because I had no no idea this movie existed. And then two of my uh, film festival buddies both said it was good and that I should probably watch it. And then thankfully I managed to get a screener. I just double checked and it's not a movie that's currently streaming anywhere. So I apologize in advance. But put it on your watch list if this is something. How dare you? I know, right? Okay, so the basic concept here is this is every serial killer movie you've ever seen told through the eyes of a female Iranian reporter. So knowing what you may what little you may know about Iran and the situation of women in Iran at the moment and that cultural in general, imagine this movie You've got a sexual predator out on the prowl and you have a female reporter who has traveled to the city where she knows nobody who is 
determined to figure out who the killer is and capture him. And then the movie plays out. So it's kind of like every David Fincher movie that's ever existed, but through this very narrow lens, cultural lens. And at every turn, you're like, I know this movie, but I don't know this movie. Because it plays like every movie you've seen, but it feels totally fresh because it has these cultural connotations that you may not, you're probably not familiar with. There's very few people that have that kind of cultural framework that will appreciate this. On another level, it's so good. And at the end, I was legitimately cheering because I did not see the ending coming at all. You think you know where it's going and then it doesn't go there. You're like, holy fuck, okay, I'm ready for this. So, I mean, it's not the most proficiently made movie. I mean, there's a lot of rough edges, but the actress is phenomenal. And it's just like such an interesting movie. That's like, I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's like, you know it, but you don't know it. So good. Holy so, See it if you have a chance. This is one of those movies that was on your list where it's like, I have never heard of this. So it's definitely on my list now. I'm just looking, looking it up now. So I have like zero context, but um, I've seen an article from TIFF where they're calling it the first Persian film noir. Yeah, cool. Sure. Sure. And and the uh, the director who hasn't done anything that I have seen yet, but he has uh, directed two episodes of The Last of Us, which, as we are recording, premieres tonight. The yeah. the first episode, so he's directed two episodes of that series. So that's uh, that's where he's at. So he's doing okay for himself. I, yeah. I just I can't recommend this movie enough, and I can't I take zero credit for knowing about it. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Melissa, for recommending it. Because it, it, I only watched it because the both of them said you need to see this movie. It's really good. Well, it sounds up my alley, so I will watch it at it's my very, very good. Too. Uh, and number four, your number four, we've already talked about. Avatar. Yeah, my number four is Avatar: The Way of Water. So I think James Cameron is a great up and coming filmmaker. I can't <laughs> wait to see what else he can show us. Becoming <laughs> I don't know what more we can say about this movie. I mean, we could probably talk about this movie for two hours more, but probably. but yeah, it's it, it just ended up higher on my list because I thought it was such a such a such a fun ride, such a, a great piece of spectacle that I hadn't seen in a long time, and it emotionally moved me. I think it's that good. Okay, so my number three is Top Gun Maverick, and I will take two-thirds of your last description except for the emotionally moved me because I was not emotionally moved by that <laughs> like pure glee emotionally like connected to the story because mm. honestly like it, it it there is no story like okay there is a story but there is no like real emotional connection I'm sorry I don't care how you play this there's no way this has any emotional resin anywhere in it. I like it. It's so cheesy, but the spectacle of it is on another level. And I am convinced if Tom Cruise can keep making these movies until he dies, I will keep watching them in the biggest fucking screen possible. And then give me all of like this. I'm almost ashamed, almost ashamed because I am going to admit it. I am almost ashamed to admit that I spent $180 Canadian 
on a special edition box set of Top Gun. Is one of Tom Cruise's fingers in it? What's in this thing? Oh, well, it has both movies in it. We cleared the shelves the other day because we had to move our bookshelf like five inches. And in order to do that, I had to clear all the books and all the movies off the shelf, which gave me an opportunity to clear my my collection. I I'm not even. I wish I was joking. I had four copies of Top Gun on the shelf, including uh, um, a pan and scan version, a DVD, a Blu-ray, and then at some point I bought a 4K like two years ago. And this box set that I bought has both films in 4K with all of the extras. Because the only reason I had that many versions of this movie was because of all the extras. And I just had not cleared the shelf. So they all went. But there's like, it's it's pretty fancy. There's some uh, coasters in there, some dog tags. But How can they do a box set like this and not include like a toy jet? No, it doesn't. I wish it did, but it doesn't. Yeah, it should have a toy jet. Seems obvious. It does have okay, so I didn't realize this when I ordered it. it. It said it came with photographs from the film, and usually that's like a bunch of like you know like promotional stills. Yeah, it actually is not promotional stills. It's an envelope. I may have done an unboxing actually on my Instagram. I don't remember, but it is actually pictures that appeared in both movies that have been like replicated. So you have like a picture of you know uh, Maverick with his dad. In like mm-hmm. the correct aspect ratio, it's the funniest thing. I'm like, it's actually kind of cool. Worth 180 dollars? Probably not. But this is how much it's handled. <laughs> the the beach volleyball scene is not on level with beach volley with the beach fo- football is not on level with beach volleyball. The original for me is still the superior of the two movies because you know. Scott was the man, but I give Kaczynski lots of credit. It is as close to the original as possible and still being awesome. But like, in all honesty, the technicality of that movie is just like mm-hmm. on another level. But I mean, and then for me, it really, I can't, I can't disassociate the nostalgia of the, of the, of the original. And every time I watch Maverick, because I've now seen it a bunch of times, I just keep thinking, okay, so this only elevates Top Gun like that much more. Like every time I watch Maverick, I'm like, okay, so Top Gun was even better because they did it all like 20 some odd years ago with even less technology and it still looks really good. So, okay, I've gone on enough about Top Gun. Top Gun so was we, went, we went and saw this movie together. I had a t-shirt We saw it in IMAX. I, I am on the complete opposite end when it comes to Top Gun from you. Um, you don't know I, any better, so you know it's fine. <laughs> I have no affection for the original film. Um, I Honestly, I, I, I acknowledge that it's a technical feat and, you know, hits certain, like, goalposts and, and has, like, a certain amount of cultural relevance, which has continued to sort of, like, stick around. It's not a movie that I've, I've seen it a couple times. I don't really like it very much. There's nothing there for me. It's it's fluff. It's not even fun fluff. It's just fluff. Um, so I, I wasn't even going to go see Top Gun Maverick. I was like, eh, it, it's just not for me. 
And then we went and saw it. And I think Top Gun Maverick is a lot better than Top Gun. Uh, the simple fact that it actually does have a it, it has stakes. Yeah. First movie doesn't have first movie doesn't have stakes really. No. The stakes are are you cool? Um, <laughs> the stakes of this movie are here's it, it's basically pairing Top Gun with Mission Impossible. Here's this yeah. impossible task we need to do. Now we need to train with the jets so that we can do this impossible mission. Dun dun. Um, it's Tom Cruise being Tom Cruise. The film is that all the other people that they've added to the film do a good job. Kaczynski does a good job. It's deceptively exciting and um, engaging in this movie. It's like, it's a, it's a good, it's a good popcorn thriller. Um, especially for someone who did not like the original film. The fact that Maverick won me over, I, I think is is really something. I did enjoy it. I think it's a good movie. I just don't think it's a consequential movie. Um, and I, it's not in my top ten. It's not even. I don't even think it's in my top twenty. And part of that is also going to be that I have a person in my friend circle who has decided to make their love of Top Gun Maverick their sole defining trait of their identity. <laughs> Is that me? Are you talking to me? No, no, it is not you. You see other movies. Um, and I really shouldn't let someone's insufferable love of a movie temper what I think of the movie and make me think less of. But it's hard. It's so hard sometimes. I do think it's a good movie. I think it's fun. Um, I'll, I've seen it twice at this point. I watched it when it came out on streaming. I watched it in the theater. I'll probably watch it again at some point. I'm sort of like, I'm around the edge of the thinking, I should pick up that 4K because it's a pretty enough movie and it's a good enough blockbuster that it'd be fun to throw on every once in a while. I can see that. So I may end up picking up the 4K. Um, I just don't think it's great. I also don't think it's. Uh, I I don't think Top Gun is better. I for me, I I think Top Gun. That, is, that's nostalgia talking. It is. It 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 totally like. For, I fully realize that it is nostalgia talking because when you start to break it down, like the new movie is way better, and like you say, there's actually stakes and a story. But I think on a, for me on a technical level, when I think about what you know. Tony Scott managed to capture and what he managed to do with the limited technology that he had. And you put that side by side to what the new movie looks like. And there are a lot of similarities. You kind of go, okay, well, we are now like 30 years removed from the original or whatever. And the fact that it still looks as good as it does. But I mean, that's the truth for a lot of movies. Like for me, it's just like, it's totally nostalgia talking and rolls glass. Oh, I agree. It looks good, and I I do love Tony Scott as a filmmaker. Yeah. Um. It's I, and I think Top Gun is sort of like, it's the beginning of kind of that Hollywood era of Tony Scott when For he sure. really ushered in yeah. what you can only really call the the Bruckheimer Simpson look. Yeah. Oh. He created sure. he created the aesthetic template For that sure. would be followed for like a 
more than a decade oh, for sure. uh, of action blockbusters. And so I, I don't discount that because I, I do think that Tony Scott was a great filmmaker. Um, it's just it's not an interesting movie to me. Is always yeah, no, my I could, problem. I could totally go that. And I I think the the parts of Maverick that I liked the least were the parts that pandered to my nostalgia for the first film because I don't have any. Yeah. Um, the fact that they're just going to go and like faithfully recreate the entire opening titles, I'm like, I mean that's cute, but I would yeah. like to see you do something new. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. But there's a lot of people that love that. Yeah. But one thing I really did dig about the film was how they handled um, incorporating Val Kilmer into the movie. Because for people who haven't seen it or don't know, Val Kilmer has basically um, suffered uh, from a condition. I believe it was cancer. Was it cancer he had? But I he's think so. basically, he's more or less lost the ability to talk. It's yeah. very difficult for him to talk. Um, which is why you haven't seen him in a lot of movies since then. Like, he appeared in The Snowman, but they ended up dubbing him. Um, it's That's just a weird movie all around. But they, they, you know, end up doing, like, what felt like a very sweet see, a scene and a very kind of appropriate swan song for Val Kilmer and his career in this film. Like, if we don't see him on film again at this point, this feels like a good kind of exit for him. I, agree. I, I really dug it. I thought it was it was respectful and nicely done. I agree. And for those that haven't seen it yet, uh, Val, which is streaming on Amazon Plus, is definitely checking out all of it. It's a really great documentary about him speaking, of, speaking in, you know, hypothetical terms, I guess, about, you know, his career and where he's mm-hmm. at now. I still need to see that. That's pretty good. Okay, your number three is a movie I only sort of understand the love for. My number three movie is I'm I'm curious to hear the opposition now, but my number three movie is the cultural phenomenon RRR, uh, Rise Roar Revolt, the uh, the the South Asian action film uh, that is like. Three hours long of maximalist, high-energy, over-the-top action scenes held together by a intense friendship between two men. Oh, bro love, man. It's all it is. Bro-love. It is an absolute bro love movie. It's a bromance movie to the max. Uh, the reason I love this movie so much, I can't speak to why other people love this movie, but a lot of people love this movie because yes. it is like exploding, taking the world by storm, and a lot of a lot of North American people are discovering South Asian cinema because of this movie. Um, I love this movie because to me, it feels very similar to a lot of the filmmaking that we got in the um, late 80s, early 90s, coming out of Hong Kong before the the Chinese ta- uh, takeover of Hong Kong in 1997, when we had people like John Woo and Ringo Lam and Choi Hark working in the scene, making these incredible films, and Jackie Chan doing what he did, Jet Li doing what he did, and... There was, I I was lucky enough that in the early 90s, 
the local university theater where I was, for whatever reason, managed to bring in first-run Hong Kong films that they would play every weekend. And so no matter what, I would go, I don't care what it is, I'm going to go there every weekend and see whatever it is they've managed to bring in to show. And I saw so many incredible movies. And it wasn't until later that I learned, like, you mean everyone doesn't have this? It was an incredible experience that I still treasure. And one of the things I love the most about that era of Hong Kong filmmaking is it was so damn sincere. It was very kind of like heart on its sleeve, unabashed, big emotion storytelling where there is not a hint of irony in the entire thing. And I kind of love that because one thing we get out of the imperialism of American Hollywood filmmaking is everything needs to be tongue-in-cheek and ironic or subversive because if it's too sincere, the audiences tend to like turn up their noses and turn away from it. And you don't get that in other countries you tend to get a much more kind of unabashedly we're going to cling to the earnestness of this no matter how hokey it may feel. And I love that. I genuinely love that. And that's the same sort of attitude that RR brings to it. It is ridiculous. It is over the top. It is cranking everything up to 11 with maximalist imagery and maximalist emotion and maximalist character on screen and it is not ashamed for a moment of its sincerity and of its earnestness and I think that's part of why it's captured everyone's attention is because it is like this huge broad spectacle that is so over the top I can't help but capture your attention because there's some truly batshit stuff in this movie you know, it's like if you ever want to see like a slow motion shot of a guy skidding a truck into a stop before it overturns and a dozen lions fly out of it towards the camera like a Zack Snyder movie, this is your movie. <laughs> but also it is incredibly sincere when it's doing it too. And and I, I think people are genuinely connecting with it. I can totally I love see that. that. No, I can totally see that, and I can appreciate the 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 correlation that you make between this and sort of like the Hong Kong movies of the late nineties or aughts. And I, it's not a connection that I've made, but that makes sense to me in a way that I hadn't really put together yet. And I mean, for me, I could also appreciate the spectacle of those sort of kung fu movies of that period, but it's not. I don't have that love for them that a lot of people do. Like I love the, 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 like the sequences and the spectacle of it, but like the movies themselves don't really do anything for me. And triple R for me was the same. And I never put that together. Like I could appreciate that on a technical level, it's doing something really interesting. And I mean, I have, I have seen other South Asian movies, so I kind of know that if you can, if it has any sort of formula, I can kind of see that formula and for mm. me, that formula is very broadly action, 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 musical number, action, 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 musical number, maybe an intermission, 
more action, more maybe a romance thrown in, shoehorned in for good measure, and then a final action sequence, and then a final dance number. And I mean, to me, that is not always what I'm up for, and especially when they're three hours long. I just do not really get a lot of joy out of that, but I can appreciate it. And I mean, I really in, like enjoyed it while I watched it, but it's it's not like a movie that I was like, yeah, I'm going to watch this again. I just, I watched it because everybody was talking about it and I felt like I kind of needed to be part of the conversation. Yeah. I thought it was okay. Like, sure, it's fun. I guess. I do want to see this again and I, and but when I see it again, I want it to be at like, a theatrical audience full of people that are really into it. Yeah. And I think the energy in that room, is just will be like so wild. I agree. I actually, I, th- that, I think that's the way to see it. I think that that would be the way to see it as well. <clears throat> My number two is on like the total opposite end of the spe- like so far removed from triple R. I don't even know. It's like literally falling off the spectrum at this point. And that is uh, Sarah Pauly's Women Talking, which actually I think is opening in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm not really sure. I think I went into this because I really like Sarah Pauly. And I mean, this cast is pretty impressive. Like, it's pretty much every outside of the fact that um, what's her name is intended, every female star that's like of any consequences probably in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's literally a movie about a bunch of women talking. (laughs) So it, it it opens with, and I wish I had written it down, but the title card, I think reads like something like this is a a story of women's uh, imaginations. Uh, The, the conceit here, and it's an adaptation of a book. I believe the conceit here is that, uh, a bunch of women in an Amish community, like an Amish community is being, uh, the women in that community are being targeted uh, by what the men are saying is basically a ghost. They're being raped in the middle of the night by a band of basically hoodlums from the community. And one of the young women catches a guy before he actually does it. And then all of the men go off into town to basically like take care of whatever is happening with the outside world. And the women are left behind. And these are women that have never gone to school. So they don't write. They don't really have a formal education. Um, and they decide they, so they decide that they're going to take a vote on whether to stay and deal with the outcome or whether they're going to go. And the entire movie basically unfolds over the course of like two days as all of the men have gone off into the city and these women are basically trying to decide the fate of the entire community, the women and the children in that community. And it's literally women in a room, in a barn talking. And it is so good. I cried uncontrollably for the majority of this movie. I do not know why I, I'm afraid to watch it a second time because I think I'll have the same reaction and I get emotional when I start thinking about it because it kind of feels like a movie that is completely foreign to me and also like something that like I have some intimate connection with, with which I don't because I've never experienced this in my life. But as a woman, it kind of feels like it's talking about something that 
people talk about, but you don't really like um, process. Like you talk about mm-hmm. it because it's part of the cultural conversation, but you're not actually like emotionally processing it. And sitting with this movie, which is literally just a group of women talking about this, like you're forced to deal with it in some way. And I, I don't imagine a man would have the same response to it. it this movie fucking broke me in a way that I did not expect. And every time I think about it, I just want to cry. So, like, for that reason alone, I'm like, okay, this is, like, the best thing I saw this year. And I, I cannot bring myself to see it another time. Because it just, every time I think about it, I just want to cry. Hmm. I have not seen this yet. I've been hearing amazing things. It is definitely something I will see. Um, I'm quote-unquote looking forward to it especially after your take I'm like I don't know how looking forward to it I am but yeah. it definitely feels like it's an important film um, so I'm looking forward to it for that reason I will say though that the only thing I'm disappointed in the film with at this point is the movie has Rooney Mara and Claire Foy in it which means it is one Numi Rapaz short of having all three Elizabeth Salanders in it. <laughs> the opportunity was right there and yeah. missed. Maybe it's a case of if you get all three in one place at the same time, then it causes like a, a, a you know, a chain combustion in the universe and will end all life as we know it. And so maybe a crisis was averted in that manner. I don't know. Uh, and I mean, Jesse Buckley is like, she's kind of like at this point, I mean, the, the movie is full of like great actresses, but Jesse Buckley is kind of like the third tier of the bunch. And mm-hmm. she is like by far outshining fucking everybody. Like Rudy Mar was really good, but Jesse Buckley is just like on another dimension. Like she has had a year between this and men. She is just like the, the it girl. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah this movie, I, And I don't know, like, I feel like I'm not recommending it, but you really, like, it's a movie that is really, like, it's not hard to watch. Like, you would think that a movie about the subject matter, you, like, you need to, you know, get your head in the game to watch it. But, like, the way that it plays out, it's, it's just, it feels so, like, just easy. And then Mm -hmm. you start to think, like, it just, like, hits you emotionally. You're just like, okay, this is all happening, and I'm feeling, like, these things that I don't know why I'm feeling this, because I've never had these But it just, I don't know, it's just, like, a combination of things. It just works on this, like, supernatural level that I don't fully understand. I just know that I came out of this movie, and I was like, I feel like a different person. And that happens, the last time that this happened was I watched Tree of Life. Because literally, I came out of that movie and I'm like, I feel like a different human being after experiencing that. I mean, not to be that person, but that's the power of cinema. It totally is. It totally is. So this is why Women Talking is my number two movie of the year. I loved it so much, even though I can't fully understand why I loved it. That's high praise indeed. Yeah. You're number two. My number two is Ryan Johnson's The Glass Onion. This is his follow-up to Nights Out with uh, Daniel Craig reprising his role as Benoit Blanc um, with a whole new cast of characters and a whole new mystery to solve as a bunch of uh, 
bunch of friends are invited out to Edward Norton's island for his own little murder mystery party that he's put together, and and Daniel Craig is uh, is potentially uh, crashing the party as real murder hijinks happen. Um, I love Knives Out, and I loved Glass Onion as well. I saw this for like the week that Netflix shoved it into theaters. And so oh, I yeah. went out and saw it in the theater that way. And then I like just had to like sit and wait until Netflix finally released the thing so I could watch it again because I just wanted to watch it again and talk about it with other people who had seen it. And at that point, it's like no one had seen it, and I couldn't watch it again. It driving me nuts. I hated it. Um, but I, I actually love this movie. Like It's one of those things where, depending on the day, if you ask me which of these movies I liked more, it might be Knives Out or it might be Glass Onion. I think Glass Onion is just as good at night as Knives Out. Um, I enjoyed it so much. And I don't know if it's a crystal ball or what, but... The week that I saw this in theaters was basically the week that everything just, like, got set on fire at Twitter with Elon Musk. Mm. And Edward Norton's character in this movie is very clearly supposed to be Elon Musk as this douche bro tech disruptor guy who wants the entire world to revolve around him and so desperately wants to be seen as cool and really has nothing behind him at all there's there's nothing going on there just ego uh ego and money that's it and it ends up being such a biting indictment that could not have landed at a better time and there's no way he could have known that in advance but at the same time it, I don't know it was just it, it was like this perfect cherry on the cake of an already great movie and it's a it's a murder mystery party movie and Ryan Johnson is so good at doing these types of movies it it constantly is able to convince you it's like okay I know what this movie is I know where this movie is headed I know the what of how this is going to play out. The real question is the how and the who. And then it twists. It's like, oh, it's not playing out the way I thought. And it does that multiple times. This movie manages to keep you on your feet with with how this is going to play out and how this goes. And by the time you get to the very end, it's so satisfying and so fun. I, I want him to make these movies for the rest of his life. And, and, you know, I, I really like Ryan Johnson. I think he's a really interesting filmmaker. But I think for me, it's the reason that I keep watching his films is it's nostalgia for the early years of Brick and at this point, even Looper, which feels like it's like a, a whole lifetime away. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, I didn't, I thought Lime's Out was fine. I mean, I liked, I thought, oh, okay, Ryan Johnson's made this movie. It's kind of like everything else he's made, but kind of elevated. And now he's made The Glass Onion, which is even like a step above that. And the reality of it is that me personally, mystery things are just not my thing. Like, I don't like mystery novels. They're not really my cup of tea. Clearly, mystery movies are really not my cup of tea. I'm not a huge Agatha Christie fan either. So, like, it's varying returns. So, I mean, I could it was a lot of fun to see Edward Norton kind of like being a douchebag 
and this cast of characters who feel like they are at complete odds with each other. And like just the opening scene of them on like solving the mystery of the box is fucking hilarious. Uh-huh. And then Monet just goes in there and like beats the fucking shit out of it with a hammer. It's like same result, less trouble. I just <laughs> like that kind of stuff I can really appreciate. I just for me personally it's not the kind of stuff that I really like to watch, but I'm kind of with you. I mean, at this point, I just want him to be successful and keep making the stuff that he wants to make. And if these are the movie he wants to make, goodbye me. I don't get, I don't care as long as he keeps getting paid. I just really hope that at some point down the line, I get another brick or another looper. Cause then I would be very, 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 very but I'm okay with this. Well, and like the, uh, the, the deal that he inked for this, so he's doing two of these movies for Netflix, two two uh, follow-ups to Knives Out. So this is the first one. So we we are absolutely getting a third one because that was like in the contract. But the thing that I find the wildest is, do you know how much Netflix paid for these two movies? I can only imagine four hundred and fifty million. Yeah, that's a lot of money. That's a <laughs> lot of money. So two hundred and twenty-five million a movie. Yeah, and which okay, so Ryan Johnson is produce uh, uh, producer um, Ram. They the deal that they inked for Knives Out was that they owned the sequel rights and owned the characters, but MRC got distribution of the first film. So he created this movie that was a phenomenal success. Everyone wanted a piece of. He was gonna do sequels, and he owns it outright. Yeah. And Netflix comes in and gives him four hundred and fifty billion for two movies. He did not spend two hundred twenty-five million on this movie. No. The budget is somewhere around sixty million. Yeah. So they are walking away with a freaking treasure chest from these films that that is every filmmaker's dream right there to create something that is so popular that you make retirement money off of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like, and, and he's continuing to make good movies off of this franchise. It's like, exactly. it's absolutely astounding. I and love it, was, it. It was, it's funny because the other day I saw a trailer for poker face and I'm like, this feels a lot like a Ryan Johnson movie or, and then I realized it was a series produced by Ryan Johnson. I'm like, okay, this yeah. Total sense. Which I'm looking forward to that too with uh, Natasha Leone. Yeah, that looks fun. Yeah. Um, so you broke my heart a little bit, but I don't care because my number one. By, by not there. including Top Gun Maverick on my list? No, no. You're a little slide remark about the Batman. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I, and I have now seen this movie countless times. I know my letterbox says that I've only seen it twice, but there are multiple reviews viewings of multiple films that didn't make it into my diary so hence my year in review only has two movies that i rewatched twice um i think in part it's my love for matt reeves that elevates my love for the batman and i can't i can't ignore the fact that i'm also a really big robert pattinson fan um and so that certainly plays a role into it for me it's full acknowledgement that this is the Batman movie that David Fincher will never make. Because <laughs> it totally feels like a David Fincher movie, but not. Um, and I'm okay with that. And so I will take it in any way that I can. And I appreciate that um, Matt Reeves will make another one and I will probably love it just as much. And if I only get to 
Batman movies that I really like. Well, three, because I really like the original Batman. Um, I'll be happy and I can die happy with it. I, I, like, I have nothing to say other than I love this movie so much. And I've talked about it incessantly to anybody that will listen. And I, like, yes, I can see where it is not a great movie. But I cannot unlove it any less than I do. Like, I see all of the problems and I still love it, maybe despite of the problems, because it still really works for me. Mm. And yeah, okay, it has, like, the fingerprints of all of these other filmmakers, but I am okay with you um, making an homage rather than, like, outright stealing. And it, it is, to me, it feels like a Matt Reeves movie. Like, it is very much, yes, it has these trademarks of other things that are familiar, but at the end of the day, it still feels like something that Matt Reeves would have made. And I just, I am unabashedly in love with this filmmaker. Like, I love him. I love him. I do. You can make no wrong for me. I have not disliked the Matt Reeves movie ever. And the <coughs> continues, so I'm okay with this. So I did, I like this movie. Um, contrary to popular belief, I did like the Batman. Uh, it may be one of my favorite Batman movies. I'm not 100% sure there might be one that edges it out, but I think the Batman is a really good Batman movie. Um, I think it's one of the first times we get to see Batman as a detective, mm-hmm. which is neat. Um, a friend of mine likes to point out that it's the only Batman movie that seems to care about Batman as opposed to Bruce Wayne. I think I probably agree with that. Um, and I do love Matt Reeves. I think there's a lot to like here. Uh, unfortunately, I think there's also a lot of, there's a lot of stuff I don't like about this movie. Um, it, like you, you said it already, it's baby's first seven. It really, it's just like Batman meets seven. Um, in a lot of, not just inspirational ways, but to the point where it's like, oh, the complete structure of the script is just summoned straight up to like, here's the point where they capture the bad guy before his plan is done sort of thing, which, mm-hmm. okay, I know how this plays out. Um, which I don't think flatters the movie, especially considering that we're what, like 25 years out from seven at this point. And it I think that that's to part be going of... back to that. Well, well and seven it... is one of my favorite films. I love that movie. Well, and this is it. I think it's hilarious because there are still so many people at this point that have not seen seven. And I do not understand it. I'm like, what rock have you been living under for 25? Years? Well, and I think there's also a whole generation of kids who have never seen seven, but oh, are yeah. going to watch the Batman. And then eventually they're going to get around to watching seven and they're going to feel like, like, you know, it's ripping off the Batman. Which is but just that's sad. Not, but that's not how time works. Yes, it um, is. I, th- I think one of my biggest problems, and this isn't necessarily the film's fault, is that at this point, I'm bored of Batman. I've gotten way too much Batman. I need Batman to go away for a while. And unfortunately, there's a lot of Batman here. And it's a character I just can't take seriously. Yeah. And every film progressively asks me to take him more seriously than the last. And it's so goofy. Uh, I know. I, can tell I, you. I, I almost yearn for a goofy Batman again. And it's like, it's going the opposite direction. Yeah. 
<clears throat> that was, I think that's my criticism of all of the DC movies is they all take themselves a little bit too seriously. Mm. I'm willing to kind of like put on the rose colored glasses for some more than others. Like I, perhaps it's like this on like it's this like deep subconscious thing, but I prefer the dark and broody, and it is something that comes across in like a lot of the stuff that I consume prefer the dark and broody to the colorful and happy so like it is baked into me but i can totally see where like it's a little too much but i'm hoping like my secret hope is that they make one more movie and then it's over and then i don't have to see batman for a long time and he'll just be rebooted immediately and then i don't have to worry about it too much money in batman well, you know? is, and I'm totally fine with that because Matt Reeves will go off and make something else and then I can let the Batman go and not have to worry about it. it it's also like my secret wish of hoping we just like don't get any James Bond for a long time. It's yeah. never going to happen. It's just an institution at this exactly. point. Exactly. Yeah. You know, um, just something that I have to deal with essentially as being someone who's heavily involved in film is like Batman just always going to be there and people won't stop talking about it. Yep. Um, which really makes me sound more down on the film than I really am. But my biggest problem with this movie, above uh, amongst all the problems, like you know, the fact that like I think it's it's too grim, it's too emo, um, it's it's too seven. But more than anything, it is too goddamn long. There is no justifiable reason in the world why this movie is over three hours, especially when there's some real damp slog in this movie. We were talking earlier about how James Cameron is so efficient at his storytelling. And and as much as I love Matt Reeves, and I do love Matt Reeves, he really could take a page from Jimmy on this one and learn how to be a little bit more economical in this storytelling. Because I... And it's a general trend, too. I don't want to point the finger at just the Batman or just Matt Reeves. And I know that, like, I've become Twitter villain of the day on multiple occasions for saying that movies should be shorter. But it really feels like either laziness or a lack of ability or just not having the time to fully develop a property before it has to be in theaters is the reason why we're ending up with a baseline starting point of two and a half hours and then going up to three and a half hours for movies. For movies that should be sitting in the 90 to 120 minute range. Um, and I think the Batman is one of the worst offenders of this, to be honest. I Honestly, for me, if all movies could go back to 90 minutes, it would be ideal. I, I think you're totally right. There is just like this current trend of long i don't even know if it's longer it's is better it's just like movies are just general three hours and i there's no need reason for them to be that long and honestly if i want a three-hour movie i will watch all of the extras like that's why there exist it's so that if you really want it you can delve in and take in as much of it as you want for me i know for a fact that it's because i have this love for this movie that I don't care that it's three and a half hours long. It could be four hours long and I would watch it because just like, I want to bask in all of it, like all of the nasty blackness of it and it's total emo-ness of it. Just like give it all to me. I will take it all. But I fully realize that it's completely unnecessary. I just like it. Right. Uh-huh. Like there are some way, like the director's kind of things 
if I really like that movie, I will watch the director's cut, even if there's a reason it's the director's cut. It's probably not better than the original. There's very few instances where your director's cut's actually better. But, like, if I really like it, I will probably give a light of day because I just want to delve even further into the masterpiece. I really think it's because Studio Phil Beacon has moved out of the paradigm of, like, let's develop a property, and then once yeah. it's good enough, let's shoot it, into let's book the theatrical date, and then from there bring people on board to like as quickly as possible hammer this thing out yeah. and given more time to actually develop it they would get it to a reasonable length and work that stuff out it's like the less time you spend on a film the more kind of the more baggage it's going to have where it's just going to like it's going to be bulky and it's going to have stuff that should have been cut out and excised but now that you've already shot it, it's hard to remove that stuff, even in the edit process, because this is all tangible stuff that is needed. You know, you haven't had a chance to refine it down. I mean, and, you know, it's... It, it, and, and I think it's also resulted in a generation of filmmakers that don't is, know how to be economical with their storytelling. That's what, that's what I was going to say. I think my fear in all of this is that we're getting to the point where there was an entire generation, not just of filmmakers, but of executives that don't know how to do anything different than that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we're too, like, unless there's like another like 1970s where, you know, people come along and say like, let's just do things our way. And our way is different than what the, you know, the expectation is like, we're not going to move beyond that. And that's the sad part. That's the really sad part. Well, and my big fear is, like, we do end up with cycles like that. Like, we had the stuff meet, and there was the independent movement of the 90s, whatnot. But my fear is that the film industry is in a position now where the next time one of those movements comes around, one of those cycles happens, the machine will swallow it up and replicate it before it can actually subvert anything. Yeah, this is exactly where we're at. Exactly where we're at. And we've totally devolved. <laughs> conversation. Your number one movie of the year. Uh, well, uh, did you say was Batman your number one? Yeah, it was my number Are one. We on, okay, all right. So my number one movie of the year is, of course, Morbius. No, I'm kidding. It's not freaking Morbius. <laughs> I'm like, wait, that's a curveball. I didn't see. What? <laughs> Just having a bit of fun. No, my favorite movie of the year is absolutely Everything Everywhere All at Once by the Daniels, starring Michelle Yeoh and Ki-Hu Kwan. I love this movie so much. It is packed with so much. It is so emotionally wrapped. It is exciting. It is thought-provoking. It is doing stuff that I have never seen before, especially in a couple years when we have just been overwhelmed with the concept of the multiverse. It's like, I'm, I'm sure at a certain level, they were both kind of like pinching themselves and kicking themselves because by the time they got to Mark, is like, is the multiverse overplayed? Maybe a little bit, but also that they kind of lucked into audiences being prepared for multiverse in a way that they wouldn't have to onboard audiences so hard. Um, but what you end up with is 
an incredibly fulfilling story about a woman who is wrestling with the fact that her life has not turned out the way it has. Her father still looks down on her life choices and she is passing on that trauma to her daughter. And she doesn't know how to get out of this cycle. And by being thrust into this interdimensional adventure that completely uproots her life, she manages to bridge that relationship between her husband who is about to divorce her and her daughter who is about to cut her out of her life and become the person that she's always known that she's supposed to be. And I don't know, maybe I'm just at the right age myself where I'm in my 40s, I have a kid of my own. And you can easily look back and say, sure, I have all this potential for the stuff that I'm still going to do. But also my life has not turned out the way that I thought it was going to. And maybe there's a version of me out there that's leading a much more happier life. And it's it, it's wrestling with a lot of really interesting ideas that I think at a very particular point in your life that I am the perfect spot for right now people tend to wrestle with and does it in such a clever and spectacular way. I've, I've always loved the, the Daniels as filmmakers from their music video days. Um, they really exploded with the music video turned down for what, but they did a lot of stuff before that, that I just like stumbled upon their stuff. It's like, Oh, these guys are doing really interesting things. And so when they moved into doing feature films, they did Swiss army man. And I liked that movie. I didn't love it, but I did like it. And this, this movie feels like the promise of what I saw in those Daniel music videos coming to fruition. And I think there's a reason why this was a massive runaway success. It like blew away all the expectations. Everyone fell in love with this movie. The word of mouth was so incredibly strong. Um, I guess the Gold Globes just happened, and I guess both Michelle Yeoh and Kehu Kwan walked away with awards. So it's very clearly connecting with people deeply, which I love to see that this is not gone as an undiscovered gem. That I'm like the lone person in the night saying, no, this is a great movie you need to watch. Like people are watching it and people are loving it. And that feels really great, especially since it is ostensibly a very small movie. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that's particularly interesting. If there is one sort of Cinderella story here in 2022, it's this movie. Because it, it did open at the beginning of the year and there was a lot of buzz around it. Because it is a really special film and it's doing things in a very interesting and unique way that's very distinctly different than what is offered at any level out of the Hollywood or even independent machine. It's just hitting all of these... Um, sort of uh, nails that you don't think should be in the same movie. And all of a sudden you see it and you're like, okay, this totally works. Why are not more artists not doing this? And it's the reason is because it's really hard. Like it's really hard to make a movie like this. And so mm -hmm. you have to have like the right filmmakers and the right actors and the right tech team. Like a lot of things have to go right for this movie to exist. And it just happened to, to work. Uh, for me, the fact that, into 2023 we're still talking about it even a movie that came out in march of 2022 in a, a 
a, a year where there was a lot of really great movies that came out and there were a lot of options for people to watch stuff. And we're still talking about it. That, I think, is like the staying power of this film. Personally, I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I It doesn't have the, the staying power with me that it did for a lot of people, but I can appreciate it on multiple levels. And honestly, the... F- like there's just so much to like about it. Like the the whole thing with the googly eyes and the rocks was probably like the moment of 2022 that was like the most surprising thing that I saw that I was like, wow, this works in a way that I didn't see coming. And the fact that Michelle Yeoh's finally getting some like much deserved it. Like it, it's shocking to me, like just shocking. Like, she's been in movies forever and she's I've always been a fan of her but then you think about it and you're like how has she not gotten recognition before it feels like she's always been there and we've always talked about her well clearly in some circles yes but not everywhere so it's it's nice to see the the love for this movie has continued to gain and like you I'm I'm so thrilled that it has found legs in a wider with a wider audience and it's not relegated to this little indie movie that could, and it's become like a blockbuster. It's like a genuinely, it's a movie that people have seen and are talking mm-hmm. about. And I'm so glad for it. And I'm curious to see what the Daniels do next because they are interesting filmmakers that are playing outside of, you know, the system. And so it'll be interesting to see if they continue that trend or if maybe they're part of this catalyst that kind of brings sensibility back into the mainstream. I, I, I'm doubtful. I think they'll just keep making their movies their way and people will watch them and some people will not watch them and every once in a while they might get another hit. But I really hope that it's kind of ushering in uh, uh, something new moving forward. Yeah, we saw this at the beginning of the year in its original limited release. Um, it had only come out in like about 20 different cities and fortunately like you know there's only like one theater in town that was playing it when we saw it and it was a packed theater then and I remember there being a lot of growing frustration because like I wouldn't stop talking about the film and there was the response I always heard from people is like I can't go see it it's not playing anywhere near me and it took a while for it to open up. It was probably like a good like two, three months before it was like wide and people could see it. And even when we came out of the theater, like back at the beginning of the year when Cena knew immediately, it's like, okay, this is going to be on my top 10 of the year. No matter, you know, I don't see anything being better that is going to bump this off the list. And it held firm there for the entire year. It's really easy for those movies that, you know, come out in the beginning of the year to fall off and like completely forget about those films. But this one had just like completely stuck around with me. And I've watched it probably like a good like four or five times since. It's like this is this is a movie, it's not just a great movie for this year, but for me, this is one of those movies where it's like this is a movie that I'm gonna have carry with me for the rest of my life. This is a movie that I'm going... This is a Matrix. This is a Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is something that I'm going to treasure and I'm going to keep coming back to back to over the years and enjoying again because it is that special to me. And it's 
so rare when you get one of those movies, but it's so great when you can add another one to the list. Yeah, fully agree. That's it's not the year in review. It's our favorite movies of the year, but I was going to say like let's talk about some of the movies that didn't quite make the list, but I'm looking at the running like Morbius. I, well, I think that that's a conversation to be had with the <laughs> and I those. But I think maybe we'll put a pin in it for now and let's let's come back to it in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we can do it we can do an additional episode to yeah, cover a bunch of other movies. Because we are literally at like almost two hours and 40 minutes. Oh my God. We're going to have to change the name of the podcast to blank check. If we go any longer. Right. So I think, I think let's, let's, we'll, we'll put a pin in here. Um, we are going to come back to talk a little bit more about 2022 and our next show. We'll talk a little bit perhaps about the movies that didn't quite make the list and maybe some stuff that uh, was disappointment. And, you know, we could maybe even talk about some other stuff that we've been consuming over the last year that we really enjoyed. Uh, but for now, we'll stop there. <laughs> it just goes to show it really was a great year. We had a lot of great things to say about a lot of great movies. And like you mentioned, not a lot of overlap. So if you only go with these 20 movies, you are set, people. There's a little something for everybody there. For sure. For sure. Um, come on by tcpod.ca we'll link uh, we'll list all of the movies um, there will be some time codes there so you can sort of follow along um, and again in a couple of weeks time we'll come back and finish the discussion and we'll maybe wrap up our 2022 before we start talking about some 2020 stuff so until then Ash where can people find you uh, that's a good question uh, I basically at this point I've made the decision to leave Twitter I, I feel like I'm done with Twitter. The whole situation on that site has gotten so bad that I'm just like, no, it, Titanic days, I'm out of here. Um, so I've set up on other services, even though I'm not using all of them vociferously. I'm on Mastodon. I'm on Hive. I'm on Post. You can find me there if you, if you really need to get a hold of me. Um, I'm on Instagram as well, even though I still have not figured out how to use it. Um, other than that, I don't know, Letterboxd? You can find me on Letterboxd. Yeah, so and I think that uh, I, I gave up on Twitter quite a while ago. Uh, as you may have seen, there's been, been months since I posted anything on there. And literally for a, even before then, uh, it was basically just, here's the new episode of the show, which we'll keep going up on, on Twitter. But I am making a more concerted effort this year to use Letterboxd as more than just a dumping ground. Because usually the way I use it is based literally just a diary of what I've watched. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make more of an effort to play more with the community in general. Um, okay, let, let, let me let me sidetrack this real quick because this is a thing that I've thought about. I really would like to see uh, Letterboxd kind of add like a, a blogging component to it so that like I could like do like a film newsletter or something on letterbox and people who follow me on letterbox could read like my film newsletter where I could just like blog about, you know, movie stuff, like do stuff on like a topic and do some like long form writing. I think that would be really good and they should add that as a feature. I like it. And well, we, apparently I know somebody that works there. So, Hey, Ooh, we can get on this then. There we go. Um, but yeah, so I will link to our letterbox accounts and, you know, 
that's probably the best place to find us for now. And then we'll be back. And there you can find out what I really think of Morbius. <laughs> but I think we talked about Morbius at some point in the discussion. We probably did. I, I do remember a discussion because I remember saying I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would. That was my <laughs> Okay. Which is the high bar every movie shoots for. Yeah, exactly. But we can talk about that on the next show. Until then, um, I forgot how we wrap the show. Ins- insert catchphrase here. Opening and closing credits are Happy Alley by composer Kevin McLeod. For more information, visit incompetech.com.